This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. The ceiling fan is off, but I have air conditioning now, so you don't have to worry about me dying as an old man. I just realized, everything I just said, you're probably going to use as outtakes, aren't you? The whole thing? Um, Was there anything in there worth using? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I don't think so. You There's your little laugh, though, that Michael Bailey made fun of. That's true. That's true. That's awesome. We'll love that. Thanks so much, Michael Bailey. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal. This is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition. No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gatto, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny. It only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls.
Latte. I'm your host, Stella, and this is Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, Episode 161, No Man's Land, Part 2, for September MMXVIII. Backroll the Oracle is brought to you by... Hey there. Welcome to the Mirror Factory. I'm the foreman, Max Romero, so let me tell you a little bit about what we do here. The Mirror Factory is a podcast where we talk about your favorite passages from novels, novellas, and short stories. Each episode features a different guest, who will tell us a little about the book their passage is from and why it means so much to them. Then that guest will give us a special reading of their favorite passage for our listeners. If you think you'd like to be a guest on The Mirror Factory, drop us a line at Factory Mirror on Twitter, The Mirror Factory on Facebook, or at MirrorFactoryPodcast at gmail.com. The Mirror Factory is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Time to get back to work. Until next time, read a book. Oracle the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Well, I'm actually really excited right now because one of my dear friends is on, and Ooh, for some reason, here? oh, good, that's a good one. And that's funny because I was about to say he always brings controversy with him, and while I get excited, the interweb seems to not get excited about it and gets really <laughs> upset. Like, why do you have that guy on there again? So it's like, oh, oh man, but. Here he is. Uh, I like to call him Shagalicious, and I'm really happy to know that that name is trending. While he might not like it to be trending, but please welcome back my good friend, the irredeemable Shag. Salvietti, Stella. It's <laughs> nice to meet you. <laughs> not even close, sir. Are you kidding? Not that was like perfect pronunciation Latin. Wait, it's a dead language. How does it even know how it's pronounced? Oh my gosh. We, it's not we like know. people teach it in school anymore. Give me a break. I hope your daughter, she's in the middle school now. She needs to take Latin. She's taking Spanish, thank you very much. She needs to drop Spanish and take Latin. I will let you take it up with her Spanish teacher. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you for having me back on the show. I really appreciate it. I know after last month where you fired Michael Bailey after he said being a teacher is easy, oh my mm. gosh, uh, I knew that it was pretty easy for me to get this gig. So that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I try to stay away from hot-button topics, and he just dropped that right there and kept on rolling as if no one was going to respond to it. Oh, I know. I know. Tom Panneries, I'm sure, hung up the podcast right there. Uh, <laughs> Sean Ross, uh, all kinds of people just probably said, oh, I'm done with this. Oh, man. And, and speaking of, uh, apparently we insulted your character. Is that true? Do you have anything that you want to get off your chest now and defend yourself? Oh, no. There's there's no point. I just noticed that within, I think, nine minutes of the podcast, and five of those were a song, so within like the first four minutes of the podcast, I took like three <laughs> shots, and I'm like, wow, thanks, guys. I feel really uh, good about this. I feel like it was only the beginning where I did some sort of laugh, and Michael Bailey said, "You, that was a, that was a shag laugh. He's just jealous because Mike's dead inside. He doesn't know how to laugh anymore. Mm, mm, okay. Yep. Well, here we are with No Man's Land. I've heard of that. 
I know. And I do, before we get into it, want to do some, some warm-up questions. Uh-oh. All right. Let me get my, let me get my tracksuit on. Okay. Where were you around this time when No Man's Land was coming out? Oh, Earth. <laughs> Which Earth specifically? <laughs> Post-crisis Earth, apparently. Um, okay, so 1999, me personally, I had dropped out of the Batman books by this point. Because I, like, when I started, it was 1989. You know, in the Batmania and all that, I got caught up in Batman, fell in love with the book, became a diehard Batman fan. And collected for about five or six years. And really, it's surprising. It doesn't sound like much. But the amount of Batman comics that were coming out at that point, I mean, it's it's multiple long boxes. So, I mean, that's hundreds of Batman comics I have just from those years. And I, it was probably shortly after Prodigal, because I'm such a you know Dick Grayson fan. I, and once Dick Grayson was back out of being Batman, and he was gone, and Bruce came back, I was like, well... I don't know. I'm a little burned out. And so I just kind of walked away. I continued to collect Robin. I continued to collect Nightwing. I, you know, eventually Birds of Prey when that started. So I, I was buying the ancillary books, but I got kind of a little burned out at Batman and Detective. Then I would drop back in from time to time. There's an interesting story. And, and I can't tell you what it was about No Man's Land that brought me back. I don't know because I didn't get uh, Cataclysm and all those other ones. But No Man's Land brought me back from the beginning. I was there, and I checked my comic collection to make sure I actually had those issues. Sure enough, I do. I started with Batman No Man's Land, the, the, the special, and I, I bought Basically, the whole year, I bought the main four titles, you know, Batman, Detective, Shadow of the Bat, and Legends of the Dark Knight. Uh, again, Robin and Nightwing as well. I didn't buy the Azrael and stuff like that, but I, I was pretty much in, and I stuck through the end of the year, and then shortly after that, I dropped back out again. So it apparently drew me in, and it was enough to keep me, but it, I didn't stay. Do you think your story is similar to others? Because as you were talking, I was sort of thinking about all the events that I've been covering with Batman. It does really seem like one after another. Now, of course, I've been reading them and skipping other issues. But this one came, you know, we had Contagion. We had uh, Legacy, mm -hmm. Prodigal, you know, all those things. And then we had No Man's Land. Do you think that No Man's Land came at a time when there was some fatigue and then it brought a lot of people in? Or do you think people were consistently reading and kept on with it and this just reinvigorated their their love? Well, I think the 90s brought a lot of fatigue with, uh, like, if you look at Superman, you look at the sales on that, Death and Return of Superman, right? Reign of Superman was monstrous. It was huge. And then a minute was over. Uh, the sales started to slip, and then they do another big story, and it peak up and go down. And so there was always event after event after event. And it, I always felt like Batman and Superman were both chasing their quote unquote death of stories. I felt like Bat Superman was constantly chasing the death of Superman, you know, popularity, and I felt like Batman was constantly chasing the Nightfall popularity. So I think they did a lot more events than they should have, and that may have created some fatigue. I don't know that event fatigue is what got me. I think it was just I was done with my Batman phase. You know, it's I kind of was like, well, I've done this a lot. I've been a Batman fan. How, how many different Batman stories can I read? And then with No Man's Land, it must have been the marketing on No Man's Land because I, I don't think I would have just randomly picked this up and went, what's this? It must have been the promotions that brought me and so many other people in because I, you're right. I know a lot of people that just dove in for No Man's Land. And part of it is because it's just damn good. I mean, it's a complete deconstruction of the character. It's it's not a Bruce Wayne story by even remotely. It's a Batman you know, it, it's, it, well, it's, it's about Batman. It's not about Bruce Wayne. So it's um, it's very much a deconstruction of what's going on in the Batman universe at that time. But it's uh, it was fantastic. So I, I don't know that I really answered your question, but I filled some airtime there. <laughs> you absolutely did. And, and you got a little bit to another question I had, which is why this is such a beloved story. Because I feel like when I announced I was doing this, 
a lot more people started interacting on social media, especially on Twitter of, you know, how excited they were for this Mm -hmm. coverage. I haven't checked download numbers. I don't really check those sorts of things. But it seems like if I were to pick two that maybe for the most part you could say aloud and people would know what the story was, I'd say No Man's Land and Nightfall. Yeah. Do you, why do you think No Man's Land is such a, a beloved story? What is it about that? And I think you started to get at, to it, at it when you were saying it's, it's very much a Batman story and, and deconstructing that character. But any other thoughts on well, why it, people love it so much? It was such a different animal. And I'm not, and I'm sure someone's done something like this since, but I mean, first of all, Batman being such a huge industry for DC, to take such a huge risk where you take an entire year and basically just run one story for a year. I mean, that's, it's hugely uh, courageous. You know, it's courageous of DC to do that. It's risky to do that, to change the entire setting of it and commit to doing a whole year of this. And, and to, again, to deconstruct the entire Batman and the, the entire Batman family and rip it apart on, and rebuild the entire thing and the Batman rogues gallery at the same time, too. It was an insane endeavor. Now, if the story had sucked... It, obviously, none of this would have worked, and they would have took a huge hit. But because it was so good, I think because, again, because it's so good, and because it was such a huge endeavor, I think it's why it's so beloved. And uh, and you can look at the trade paperbacks. I mean, goodness gracious, you've got the first one of trade paperbacks, and it was so popular they went back to press with an entirely different version of them, right. which are the ones I have. And mm-hmm. with, I don't. I'm stupid. I buy comics and trade paperbacks of stuff I like. I'm just. I'm. I'm not responsible with my money. But <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say stupid. I think I. I've heard you tell this before. I would say lazy because the reason why you do it, you can correct me because it's your life. But I think the reason you do it is because you don't want to go sifting through your comics in the long boxes. It's easier for you to find the trades. The the 49 boxes that are in the garage are underneath <laughs> the Christmas decorations and shoved in a corner and are difficult to get with. And with my luck, every time I want to find something, it's in the box on the bottom, which is like seven layers down. I'm like, oh, that's not happening. That's I just, yeah, I'll buy a trade. So that, there is some truth to that, absolutely. <laughs> I'm looking forward to trying the uh, DC Digital app uh, that comes out very, very soon. Hopefully they'll have uh, some of this on there then. Oh, my gosh. Do you think you, your wish has finally been granted where it, it's similar to a Marvel? No. No, it's not. Uh, everything I've seen is it, – well, it's curated. So they're going to have about um, – I've done a lot of research on this, and I even watched the 90-minute Kevin Smith special that was kind of horrible um, from a production point of view, that is. Anyways, uh, they're going to have about 2,500 comics on there in a given time. Every couple of months, it'll, it'll change out. It sounds like what they're probably going to do is give you, like, the first trade paperbacks worth of stories. Mm. And then if you want to keep going, you buy the trade. You buy sure. the next trades or whatever. So that's kind of what it sounds like it's going to be. Uh, whereas a Marvel Marvel Unlimited is the greatest thing that ever happened to comics. Um, it's just unbelievable. I wish DC's was going to be that thorough. But either way, the point of this is uh, No Man's Land is beloved because it was a wonderful 12-year saga and it was incredibly well written. 12 month. What did I say? 12 year? That would have yeah. been even better. That would have been even better. 12 Could years. Can you imagine? Like, 12 months is okay, I guess. Yeah. Do you know, off chance, this is something I didn't think about. How long did the Nightfall trilogy last, and how long did the Death of Superman trilogy last? Um, Death, of, Death of Superman started really in like October, November, and was over. The, the Superman was back by like April or May. So, okay. and, and even in there, there was a couple of months where there were no Superman comics being published. So even that, so, so there's now there were like ancillary ones, but there was a couple months where there were no Superman comics because he was dead. Uh, whereas, let's see, uh, Nightfall, oof, I really don't remember. I, I don't think it, it could have been a year, I suppose. Uh, I'm not really sure. 
Um, it, there's a lot. There's a lot of junk in Nightfall and Night Quest and Night's End. There really, it's it's got some soft spots in there, as far as I'm concerned. Other I people may not agree, that. but I always felt like it. No, I think there are some, and even the the three big tomes that you get now, mm-hmm. they're missing some stories because uh, I remember where. I was trying to fill in the gaps of why Bruce was all of a sudden over in a different country and why Alfred was upset with him and his like lady doctor friend had left him. Right. So I had to ask people what was happening. So even then, it's not a complete edition. And, and, and No Man's Land also, make no mistake, also has filler in there. It, yeah. But we're going to hit some filler actually tonight. And let me tell you, even the filler is damn good. I mean, it's it is, really yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah, so. and I think Michael and I also hit on some of those. I think you and I have more issues than that and while they might not have a huge impact on the story i think what makes them so good and we'll talk about this more is just what great character pieces they are focusing on maybe people you aren't aware of just a normal citizen and what their life is like in no man's land and then of course we have like an alfred little uh drama as well so it's nice to just take uh, a breath away from what batman and the rest of that cast is doing and see what the quote-unquote normal people are doing in this situation right to put to put it in buffy terms um there's the mythology building issue episodes and then there's the regular episodes as you said the regular episodes are just outstanding yeah i think one of the reasons why i love this so much is the cast of characters um mm-hmm. You know, especially just how they're working together, uh, that it's not always the greatest. They do have some some issues between them, as we will see with Barbara Gordon and Batman in this particular episode. But then you get new characters with Batgirl. And I actually really like the the tension between Jim and Batman. It's oh, it's yeah. hard to watch sometimes, but I think it just makes some really great drama. And, of course, it's it's harming some of his relationships. So to just see that happen and, and his breakdown. And also, I really love just the map, which I guess is really nerdy, but the map and to <laughs> see how the gangs take the different mm-hmm. zones and how it's shifting. I just think it's really an intriguing idea and really inventive and, and the tagging and like gang ideas uh, is something I think we've not seen with Batman before. So I think it's just a really innovative storyline that I really enjoyed and probably the first really big Batman story that I, that I had read. So it's just uh, also an emotional story for me too. I think it probably makes a good entrance point and other people may argue otherwise, but I think it makes a good entrance point for like casual Batman fans. Like you get the kids who um, like my stepson's a good example that plays the Batman video games absolutely loves the Batman video games, right? Arkham City and all that stuff. And some of that steals some ideas from No Man's Land, uh, where they, they know enough of the characters and the players that if they read a collection like this, they can go like, oh, Two-Face, what's he doing? Oh my gosh, look at that. You know, Penguin, oh wow. So they know enough of the players. And it, 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 it I mean, my collection's four trades, yours is five, but it's it's a big effort to sit down and read. But I think, I think a lot of people can walk in and it makes a good entrance point for them. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, at some point it might be overwhelming for them just because there are some characters that they might not be aware of. But I remember when I had an H period seminar, uh, one of the books I had them read was Hush. And a lot of times the comment I would get is that it was overwhelming for them because of all of the characters. Okay. And that's a 12 issue story, I think. So that's the one I usually point to as being an entrance point for video gamers, actually, is Hush. Oh, it or okay. Because it's okay. the exact same concept. You get sure. you know get a wide range of characters. It's it's a self-contained story. It's designed to appeal to the casual fan. Uh, I think it does, but obviously you've got some whiny students, I guess. But 
Now, you and Mike actually said the opposite last time. You thought No Man's Land would actually be a terrible entry point for someone. I think it's the opposite. I think it's a... It's, I don't. I don't mean someone who saw Batman. You know, begins and then goes to read comics. No, but I'm talking about again someone who's been playing the video games as a general idea of who the main players are with Penguin and Two Face and Joker and all that kind of stuff. Now they're sure. not going to. No one's going to know who Sarah Essen is, or no one's going to yeah. know who this new Batgirl is. They might not even know who Huntress is. But they're. I mean, there's enough in the story and there's enough descriptors that they, you pick it up pretty quick. Yeah, and I think with any story, if you are really intentional about it and you really have a desire to hop on and make it worth your while, then you're going to do some research. Because, I mean, that's what I did with Infinite Crisis. That's where I jumped on, and that was probably a bad point. But, you know, I made it my own, and and I was looking up these characters trying to figure out who they were. And I'm very similarly, because you and I have similar backgrounds from 50 years apart, um, I started with (laughs) Crisis on Infinite Earths. You know, and I made my and, and you know there was no internet to look things up because we still lived on stone tablets back then. But yeah. I would, you know, I would write down all the characters in Crisis on Infinite Earths and like label them by like here's my Earth One characters, here's the Earth Two characters, here's the Earth, and like try and figure out how it all fit together because I mean that's jumping in way into the deep end right there. And yet I was desperate to learn it all. I wanted to, so I, I think there's a lot to be said for people that just love to dive in the deep end. And I, I, you know, I've forgotten all these years to thank you for inventing the wheel because I don't know where we would be right now without you guys. Fire. That was one of mine, too. (laughs) Well, we actually have some also short questions that will warm us up as well from Twitter, at Sean42AZ. And you know him personally, Shag. Who is this guy? Well, not personally. I mean, not in the biblical sense. But, yes, (laughs) uh, his name is Sean Ross. Sean Ross, sorry, from the uh, from the Pulp to Pixel podcast network. He does uh, Secret Wars and Marvel Secret Wars and Beyond podcast along with his buddy Greg Arujo. Nice guy. Um, don't believe what you read about him on bathroom walls. None of it's true. He's he's good people. So you want me to read the questions? I'll I'll tell you. I'll we'll, we'll go back and forth. I'll read the first question. So Sean oh, asks, sure. what bat adjacent character shines most in new uh, in No Man's Land? Who gets the best No Man's Land storyline? Stella, why don't you go first? <sighs> This is hard. <laughs> it is. It is. My answer has changed three times since I've read the question. Oh, yeah. You know, my knee jerk, of course, is Barbara Gordon. But in all honesty, I think while she plays a pivotal role, I'm sort of trying to think of her. Is she more stag- static or dynamic? I would say between the two, I would say either Cass, Cassandra Kane, or Jim Gordon. Interesting. Cassandra, just because she's introduced, um, we get to learn a bit of her background, and we also get to see that relationship develop rather quickly between her and Barbara, and I think well, to a lesser extent, extent uh, her and Batman. But then with Jim, like I said before, just the whew, the drama between him and Batman, the tension really following him around, feeling this sense of betrayal that Batman was not there to help him out. And it's really the second time that this has happened because he felt that before when he knew someone else was in the Batman suit. And uh, later on, what happens, unfortunately, to, to Sarah, I, I feel like he's got a really interesting story and very much in the gray there you know it's not black and white and doing kind of some of these shady things we'll talk about he does some more stuff during this episode so i guess between those two if i were to put my money down i might say jim gordon 
Well, between Jim and Cassandra Kane, I definitely have to agree with you. Um, I have some issues with the way Cassandra Kane's introduced. I, I, and I don't mean to be stealing the thunder from the next episode. I just, I, my, my two cents on that is just, it feels like it's like, hey, here's your new character. Hey, Batman instantly trusts her and makes her part of the team. Really? That was kind of quick. But anyway, all right. Um, enough about that because I don't want to spoil future episodes. For me, I would say the t- the two bad adjacent characters that shine the most is Jim Gordon. Absolutely, I mean this is very much a Jim Gordon uh, adventure journey to follow because he's there from the me- beginning of No Man's Land. Batman didn't show up till three months later. You know, Jim's there the whole time. The perspective, the two perspectives you deal with the most are Batman and Jim Gordon's through the whole story. And uh, I think Gordon's is really, really powerful because Gordon's is more relatable. To someone like you or I, you know, Batman's mm-hmm. off fighting crazy things and having drug-induced, you know, hallucinations and whatever. Whereas Jim's just in the streets fighting hard, trying to survive, trying to save his family, trying to, you know, bring Gotham back. So Jim's a big one. The other one I would say is Huntress. Mm. Um, not not to get into too many details because I don't want to spoil future stories, but she has quite a journey in this story from beginning to end. And uh, I think Helena has a really because. She works hard to protect Gotham, and she has an interesting arc here. So I would say either one of those two shines the most. This would be the part where you read the next question. (laughs) The next question is, is No Man's Land ultimately a Batman, Bruce Wayne, or Jim Gordon story? And I loved when this question came through on Twitter, because there was a whole bunch of people going like, blah, 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 and I came up with the correct answer. And the correct answer is, <clears throat> No Man's Land is not a Batman story, it's not a Bruce Wayne story, or a Jim Gordon story, it is a story about Gotham City itself. It's about the city, it's about the streets, it's about the people, It is a, and Jim Gordon's a big part of that, and so is Batman, but it is about Gotham City. It's a Gotham City story, and I can prove I'm right, because even Donovan agreed with me, and as much as it probably hurt him. I don't think he realized I had already said it before he did, uh, so there you go. That's pretty funny that you guys finally laid down your swords and agreed with each other. There you go. Exactly. Exactly. Well, we're you know we're besties now. <laughs> I would agree with you. I think, however much we like to think that Jim Gordon has such a pivotal storyline in this, I, I think it really is about what is what is it like to be in a city that's been disavowed by the nation mm-hmm. and and cut off and it's ever changing because of course the gangs are taking over new territory and, and things like that and it's you know will will the city survive and Batman's all about saving Gotham and things like that so I, I would agree that I think the city is in fact uh, another character. I imagine it's a little bit like living in Los Angeles, but anyway. So, meaning they'll cut off from the rest of society. So, the next question is... Um, <laughs> is that true? I thought you were, like, talking about the, we, the riots ask, uh, and things in, like, the 90s. We have to ask our buddy David Ace Gutierrez, the owner and operator of the Katana Banana. He really oh, he would know the oh. best. So. Uh, so, the next question is, why does Huntress stay in Gotham? She has ties elsewhere, so why does she remain in the no-man's land when even Bruce Wayne is not around or didn't show up? Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, I got to go first, don't I? No, you have to go first this time. <laughs> yes, it's you, of course. No, go Stella. Okay. Why does Huntress stay? Why does Huntress stay? I think part of it is because she's always trying to prove herself. 
even though she doesn't ever seem to be accepted. Mm -hmm. And I think she realized when Batman wasn't there that it might come down to her. And to be honest, you know, Batman wasn't there. Batman kicked Robin and Nightwing out. So really, who was there? And so I think she really stepped up to the plate and showed, while some people don't like her, showed what type of true character she really is by staying. And, you know, I think with her religious background and and being a teacher, I think where people saw no hope, that she saw some hope and she felt like she could do at least a little bit of good to help people out. And who knows if her students are still there. So there might also be something like that where she wants to stay around and, and help her kids out. You know, you hit all the points I wanted to hit there, so that's perfect. I, I will take a second to talk about how much I well, – seriously, no. I mean, I, I was going to talk about her students and all that stuff. So, yeah. um, you know, I never put it together. You're, you're Helena Bertinelli because, you know, the religious side of it, the, uh, the, <laughs> the teacher side of it, you're the whole thing there. So I didn't realize that. Uh, is your parents a crime boss? That's horrible. But anyway, <laughs> so – Mama, no. <laughs> I love the Helena Bertinelli version of Huntress. Like, I never really dug the Earth 2 version of Huntress, even though I'm a diehard JSA fan. Always have been. I just, the, the daughter of Batman and Catwoman, I know there's people that love her, and there's a lot of good points about it. It's, she's just not for me. So when they first introduced this, introduced this version, I was all in. And I don't know if you know the history on this or not, but like, the whole reason that she wasn't accepted by Batman was because she was too violent. She was too over the edge. So, like, you know, Batman was always like, whoa, you got to scale that back a bit. And after a few times of running into her and she wasn't doing it, he basically said, all right, look, you're not part of the team. You're not going to be part of my family, whatever. You, you know, you need to stop. And she never would. She just kept going and going and going. And and part of it was to prove herself to Batman. She wanted to be accepted. And the other was because she was trying to do the right thing. And she was an awesome character. I love this costume she's in. Um, now, I know how much you love Total Justice. And uh, that's stuff that we did, we talked about years ago. Out of that entire line, her action figure is the best looking of all of them, and it's in this costume. It looks fantastic. She's an awesome character. And when they, at the end of the, the, the I guess the Flashpoint, and and revamped her back to being the daughter of Batman and Catwoman, that just that that crushed my soul because I love this version of Huntress. I feel like I did know her background since I've been, you know, tracing and I've seen all those interesting interactions and I see also the interesting friendship, I guess you could say, that develops between her and Robin. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can see how Batman doesn't like her because she's violent, but I don't know if it's the same as not liking and not trusting because, Mm -hmm. you know, I always ask the question, why doesn't Batman trust Huntress? Does that seem right? And People, Josh and Don yell at me, of course he doesn't trust her. But really, she's doing the job. It's just she's not doing it to his standards. Some of it, I think, honestly, is a story ram. It's like they want to create some conflict amongst the vigilantes of Gotham, and so they constantly made it so they couldn't get along. Because a lot of times, she's not doing anything out of line. You know, Then then she'll go and sleep with Dick Grayson, uh, which maybe Bat- Batman's not happy about that. I don't know. But oh, And, you know, your discussion with Michael Bailey made me realize a piece of it I never really thought of about Robin and Huntress. I just kind of said, okay, they're, they're close because they're the Robin 3 miniseries. I didn't even think about the fact that smoking hot 20-something-year-old oh. woman with a 15-year-old boy, of course he's happy to be Oh, my her. goodness. Well, it's true. It makes perfect sense. So, But great character. Super awesome character. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, All right, we'll so we see. Had, yeah. Your turn next. Oh, okay. I think we're th- – those are the three questions that we had. Yeah, I screwed up there. That happens. 
That's okay. You can cut that if you want, or you can leave it and embarrass me, whichever. Yeah. I did get a question via text from my good friend Josh. Uh oh. He wants to. Yeah, he said to ask you about Firestorm singing Deo on Legends of Tomorrow. (laughs) Which is completely relevant to this discussion. Um, (laughs) It's not at all. What it was was a clip he sent me, Josh sent me just recently, of Victor Garber from Legends of Tomorrow singing Deo. Deo. And uh, it, it convinced Josh that he now loves Firestorm, where I would actually say, sorry, I think that means you love Victor Garber, because that's probably uh, more Victor Garber than it is Firestorm. And it is brilliant, because Victor Garber is genius. May the character rest in peace. Aw, spoilers. <laughs> so before we start, I know that you have some interesting information about Greg Rucka. Well, yeah, I just thought it might be worth discussing, because you know, the, these issues we're going to cover were Greg Rucka's first in the No Man's Land saga. You know, this is a, and if you don't know Greg Rucka, first shame on you. Second of all, he played a big role in No Man's Land. I mean, he's not, he gets a lot more credit maybe than is due because there's a lot of writers in here and a lot of editors that are involved. But a lot of people think of this as where Greg Rucka became the Batman writer he went on to be. And I, I've got a couple, one, one personal anecdote there. I was at Dragon Con in 2003, so four years after Dragon, or after, or really three after the conclusion, I guess. Three years after No Man's Land, and went to several uh, Greg Rucka panels. He was great. He was really interesting. Uh, he's got, and, and believe it or not, three years after this is over, a lot of the discussion was about No Man's Land still. Even three years later, people were still asking him questions. He was still talking about it. So even though they had done, you know, Three times twelve, you know. However, you know uh, stories there. Thirty-six other months of comics. They were still talking about No Man's Land at that point. That's how powerful it was to the fans. And he told one story about writing Batman that I love to relate. And I don't know if this actually is from No Man's Land or a later issue, but he said he was talking about the challenges of writing Batman. And he said one of the things he did was there was this story where there's this situation and Batman's there, Nightwing's there, and there's a bomb on this building across the street. And Nightwing knows about it and Batman doesn't. And Nightwing's telling Batman, we got to do this. We, you know, I knew we got to do this other part of it, but we've got to go defuse the bomb on top of the building. And so he's trying to write the dialogue for Batman. He was writing, okay, he, he has Batman say to Nightwing, go quick, you know, defuse the bomb up on the, on the building. I'll go down here. It's like, no, that doesn't work. That's too wordy for Batman. And he wrote it, you know, wrote again, go defuse the bomb, Nightwing. And, you know, he's still, he's trying to figure out how to get it down. And he's like, because Batman's efficient. Batman doesn't waste any time or effort. How does he get it to be the most efficient thing? So he goes from this big, long sentence to the next shorter sentence. And finally, he realizes, no, all Batman says to Nightwing is, go. And that's all, it says it all right there. And it's just kind of interesting getting in the head of the writer who's writing these characters and trying to figure out how they would operate. And that makes perfect sense. That is exactly what Batman would say, at least in the 90s. That's what Batman would do is just... One word, you know, completely efficient. So, thanks for all your feedback on that. Then, um... I don't know what to say. This is, you know, I thought maybe it'll be okay this episode. He won't criticize me for just sitting there and listening. But there it was, the first criticism. She's playing Pokemon Go on her phone, guys. Come on, don't don't kid yourself. <laughs> so then, in in preparation for this, because I do research, I did a little <laughs> research on Greg Rucka, and because I was curious, you know, what what he had to say about it. So. Here's some interesting history that I'm, you know, I'm surprised Bailey didn't bother to bring up. Uh-uh. Well, sorry, you know, No Man's Land. There's there's one guy who's actually credited with coming up with this whole idea, and uh, his name's Jordan B. Gorfinkel, or he's called uh, Gorf back then. He was he was one of the editors that worked under Denny O'Neill on Batman. And the way Greg, this is how Greg Ruckick sort of explained. It. This is an interview from Comic Alliance from a couple years back. Uh, really good interview, and um, just. A, 
Type Break Comic Alliance, uh, Greg Rucka, No Man's Land interview, you'll find it. And uh, I'm just going to read a couple sentences here and there. He says, No Man's Land had been pitched and conceived. They've already committed to coming out uh, out of Cataclysm, but they were just starting off to staff it. I showed up pretty much at the exact right moment to end up with a lot of work on my plate very quickly, because I was young and foolish, so I wrote very quickly. And then he says, uh... Uh, oh, all of a sudden I was part of the No Man's Land thing, and there was a bundle of core writers for that, but somewhere along the lines I became the go-to guy after that initial arc. They just started tossing my stuff, tossing, tossing stuff my way, like, okay, we haven't figured out this one out yet, let's just give it to Greg. And that was all she wrote. And he says, the dirty little secret about No Man's Land is that it wasn't as tightly plotted as everyone thinks. It was only broadly plotted. They knew where it was going to start, and they knew where it was going to end, but they they didn't have all the details worked out. And according to Greg, the whole thing came out again, out of Jordan Gorfinkel. He, was, um, he, he went home one weekend, when they knew they were working on Cataclysm, and he started writing, and he wrote this overview for what would become No Man's Land. It was all his idea. He came in on Monday, puts it in front of Denny O'Neill, and said, here's an idea. And Denny says, that's insane. Let's do it. And that's how No Man's Land got born, all from this guy's fever-pitched weekend, apparently. Now, I think Gordon, uh, Jordan Gorfman has a uh, online presence. Maybe that's someone you, you should be trying to connect with, just saying. Uh, probably. I mean, no maybe I should interview him after this, uh, after all five parts. That'd be cool. That'd be great, yeah. yeah. Let's see. Rucker goes on to say there were three meetings over the course of the year, but apparently the ending was the sticky point that everyone had trouble with. They apparently went round and round and round about it, and I'm not going to say what the big ending of the story is. You guys will find out if you haven't read it already. And, and there were, like, huge arguments amongst the writers and Denny O'Neill about the specific big ending. I mean, I, I don't think I'm going to spoil anything here by just saying somebody mm, – maybe I will. Okay, there was a big shocker that came out of the end of the story, and that's what they argued about there. There was a lot of discussion about – uh, moving that around to different characters and things like that. So uh, apparently it was a very heated and contentious point. About the death, who would die? Okay, well, there it is. Yeah, I was trying not to say that. But yes, someone was going to die, and there was a lot of nasty arguments about who that person should be, whether it be mm. hero, villain, ancillary character, witch ancillary character, all these things. And there were a lot of people on different sides of it, and it got very heated. Ultimately, everyone got on the same page, and it was his decision sort of by committee, but it's not who people were looking at initially. So I heard it was going to be, well, yes. I don't know that we should say that right now. I, I mean, guess not, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just like we don't need to reveal that, uh, you know, Batgirl is secretly uh, Supergirl, <gasps> so we don't need to tell people. Oh, God, did I just say it out loud? Oh, God. Sorry, guys. Forget it. It's Kara. Don't even think about that. So, uh, interesting also, Gordon, uh, uh, Greg Rucka was talking about the novelization because, you know, he wrote the novelization, which is great. Have you ever read it, by the way? I did recently this summer. Okay. Good book, isn't it? It's well done. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And he says, he, the, here was the tricky part. They couldn't begin on the novelization uh, because it, because they were still writing the, the scripts for the comics. You know, so how, how do you write a book when you don't even know where the story's going to go? So um, he had to deliver the book to the publishers two or three months before they were even done, again, when the scripts weren't even done. So he said it was incredibly challenging. The last 25,000 words apparently were written in one sitting right before he had to oh deliver the gosh. book. And uh, just crazy. He, had, he only had four to five weeks to write the whole thing. So absolutely not. And he did a bang-up job. Now, Rucka, of course, uh, well, I don't know if you know his history. Before he came to working for DC, he's actually a novelist. Rucka 
had 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 done a series of novels uh, about Atticus Kodiak. I think Mike mentioned them last time, and then he had written a comic called Whiteout, which was a creator-owned thing, which eventually went on to get in a movie, and that's how he ended up getting to the Batman world and just. It was full throttle from when he started. I mean, he was a novelist, wrote a couple of comics, and all of a sudden he's one of the premier Batman writers out of the gate. And I, I love, I love No Man's Land, and I think Ruck is a big part of that. Wow, well, I don't know if I've ever met him. You wouldn't forget him. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! No, I was just thinking if I've ever, yeah, talked to him about anything. And I think, if I remember right, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong here, I think he is the first writer to ever pull the the trifecta or the bingo, whatever you want to call it, where in the same month he was writing the main titles for Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. Wow. Um, not just like specials or crossovers or whatever. He was he was the writer on each one of those books at one point uh, in the same month, which is kind of a cool thing to think of. Talk about fatigue. Right, yeah. That'll wear you out big time. Yeah. Whew. Well, anything else before we dive in? Sorry about the big info dump. Well, no, actually, I think it was interesting. No apologies, please. Well, as we go through this, I should probably be fair and warn everybody that I haven't reread the whole No Man's uh, Land saga yet. I read it when it first came out in 1999. I have only really read the issues to go along with the podcast. So I'm going to read as we go. So if I make reference to something other than a couple of obvious ones, like you mentioned the death of uh, the characters and things like that, that I don't remember the minutiae because I haven't reread it yet because I want to do it with the podcast. So except for the Azrael issues, I skipped those because who really cares about Azrael, really? But anyway. <laughs> Did you read Road to No Man's Land by any chance? I must have read it back in the day. Um, it's not in the trade paperbacks, and I don't remember it at all. I know Mike couldn't remember a thing about it. I can't remember a thing about it either. I must have read some of it, though, because I looked at the issues I own. I'm like, well, yeah, it appears that some of that's in there. Yeah, just because of Nick Scratch. He doesn't appear in any of our issues here, but uh, that was someone when I read No Man's Land. He wasn't in those five trades that I have. He did not appear. But after reading Road to No Man's Land and seeing how prominently he figured, now I'm interested to see how he's going to appear in the rest of the issues that I have. Now, it sounds like he's just an Azrael-only kind of character. So, again, I don't really care. Okay, man. <laughs> What's with people not liking Azrael? That's you and people over at the Batman universe as well. well. The sort of Azrael book was really good. And I keep, I hate keep continuing to give Michael Bailey credit, but um, <laughs> he said something in your last episode too, which is basically Denny O'Neill was figuring out what Azrael was as he went, is kind of what it was. And he just, he was always the Batman character who just didn't really fit, you know, of the Bat family. And there was also that kind of look around like, why does he have his own series? It's sort of like Batwing. Remember Batwing? Like, why did that happen? Really? And that's kind of how we felt about Azrael having his own ongoing. Okay. It's New 52, probably. Well, no, I know that. I know I know the actual whys, but it's like, <laughs> it's just one of those where you're like, that guy doesn't really fit with the Bat family? Okay. Sure. I don't know. I, I think there are some great stories with him, but I agree with you that maybe, you know, if I were to choose between him and somebody else, I'd probably go with somebody else. Yeah. If, you know, in the Batman family, anyway. Oh, yeah. so. Some of those guys from the Bloodline stories had better uh, stories, but anyway. Okay. Well, just to give you a rundown of how this is going to happen in case you're popping in on this episode because you're Shagoicious's number one fan, what's going to happen is I, I ask my guests to do some work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah she did. <laughs> but I didn't want them to go through so much work because I think Shag had 13 issues to go through and I didn't want him to do plot. Okay. I think I had I a lot more than him. Bailey, by the way. I think that's how that worked out. A but. lot more. 
No, he had he had 12, sir. You have 13. Poor Don has 16. The next person after Don will have 21. So <gasps> you, there's no griping. I, I did got, the best I could. I got off easy. And by the way, Don, you're welcome. I gave you one more comic when I said, I'm not doing this one, Stella. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I told him that this afternoon. It's a so good anyways, comic, though. I just it didn't fit with what it was. It was a good, yeah, and I felt that too when I was reading. I thought there's a gap here where, yeah. So that was a good call on your part. So see, Shag is he's, he's a good guy. Um, so anyways, <laughs> I didn't want to put Shag through the ringer and do full plot synopses. So what he's going to do is go through a publisher summary that DC would have dropped that I was able to find mostly on Comic Vine. Mm. And then he will also tell us what significant things any person popping on the show should know if they've not read the story or new readers. And then if Barbara Gordon appears, what might she be doing? Absolutely. So that's what we'll, we will be doing. And just like last time, we'll go by arc. So we have a couple arcs, and then we have several single issues. How do you want to do the single issues? Do you want to do them one at a time or a full batch and talk about them? Um, we'll do them one at a time. And in some cases, we'll even do story by story when we get to, like, the Chronicles and stuff like that. Okay. Sounds S- good. Since you told me I have to do all the work, you just sit back and let me do it. Your, jo- your job is to sit here <laughs> and look pretty, which you do very well, by the way. So that's- Oh, thank you. Okay. Well, you're on then, sir. All right. First story arc is Bread and Circuses. Now, here's one of the things I love about the No Man's Land the way it's put together. And this is brilliant, the way they did this. Where instead of it being, you know, like, I'll use Reign of the Superman as, the, as an example. Reign of the Superman's very, very huge, sweeping, tight storyline from Superman. And you read one issue to one issue to one issue. And each issue, it changes every month, you, or every week, really. You read this issue with Superman, it's by this creative team. The next issue you read a completely different creative team, but the story keeps going, and it's, it's one big, long story. With this, instead of doing the same creative teams throughout the whole year, they broke them up in these great little segments. You know, Bread and Circuses is by Ian Eddington, and the artist's name is D. Israel. I guess that's how you say that, Israeli or something like that. And they just did these two issues. That's it. But they, it's two issues. One's in Legends of the Dark Knight, number 117. The other one's in Shadow of the Bat, number 85, which that sequencing makes no sense. You just follow it from one issue to the next, though. And it's just these little bite-sized chunks, which makes it so much easier for a reader to drop in and out. You get your full story in that arc. Now, a lot of, it all continues, certainly, to build the tapestry. But I thought it was a really clever way to do this and also make it probably easier for the editors to survive this nightmare rather than, again, trying to do different creative team for, you know, break up each story through different creative teams. I thought it was smart. Yes. Excellent. I tell you, you are the world's best color person. Because, so, uh, you know, that's a sports reference. I don't know. I, you know, sports, I wish people – I do. Thank you. I thought you might. I wish people would write in and tell me it's okay that I let you just talk. I, there was no reason for me to say anything after what you just said. Well, here's the problem is I can talk for three hours without stopping. That's not an issue. <laughs> so then it, it occurs to me as I'm rambling in my head, I'm like, oh, it's her show. I should probably give her a chance to give feedback. In the moment I do that, I remember she's not gonna. So, okay. Uh, it's okay. sort of like this when she and I hang out, guys. It's like this silence. I'll, I'll, you know, we'll be together for like an hour, and I'm like, are oh, you even boy. awake? What's, what's That's happening? That's because over there? people have more things that are worthwhile saying than I do. Oh, what? have so i just listen to them and yeah that's that's i feel like i'm a giving person in that regard oh my goodness all right let's get into this <laughs> legends of dark knight number 117 the uh publishers recap which by the way stella yeah she did the heavy lifting she got the publisher recaps which was a See? copy paste from the internet so anyway uh, but i italicized them oh thanks okay <laughs> 
Batman takes the battle for Gotham City to the Penguin's Iceberg Lounge, a refuge for anyone with something to barter, even if it's that person's own life. Dun, 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 dun. Then uh, going to Shadow of the Bat number 85, Batman battles in the Penguin's Roman-style arena to get to the Penguin's supply line to the outside world. So that's the publisher's recaps. I wrote up the the, the details of this. It, it, it's a little bit like a recap, but it kind of gets the, the the major issues of story beats here. Because there's really, as we go through this, we're going to cover, again, what you say, 76 issues tonight. And there's really uh. three major arcs to focus on, and those are the ones I put more details in. I'm just going to keep talking because you have nothing to add. We made that clear already. But uh, so here we go. <laughs> All right. So Batman is struggling to make the criminals of Gotham afraid of him again, and because New Man's Lane is this whole new environment. While he's still relearning how Gotham operates, he's got to change his tactics, and he decides he needs an audience big enough to get his message out, the message being, he's back. And so he communicates via the Bat remote radio. I'm not making this up. It's labeled right on the equipment, because Bruce is all about the branding, folks. Anyway, he communicates via the Bat remote radio to dun, 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 Oracle. And uh, Oracle then gives Batman a lead about the Penguin, um, because speci- specifically the Cobblepot man has figured out the No Man's Land system. He's really got this booming trade business going that he controls. Plus, he runs an occasional big-ticket fight club. So folks from all gangs attend and gamble at this thing. And this and Oracle suggests this to Batman because this is the perfect venue for Batman's coming out party. He plans to rebuild his rep by publicly humiliating the Penguin in front of all of the Gothamites from all walks of life. So Batman arrives, he takes on all the Penguin's goons, and uh, and during all this, Oracle is coordinating her sources and letting her, you know, they're all letting her know that all the gangs are making their way to Penguin's new Iceberg Lounge. Uh, some of them have, like, one guy's actually got a cell phone, which I thought was interesting, other people use pay phones, you know, whatever. And in the end, uh, Batman is victorious, and everyone now knows that Batman is back, and that the Penguin is shamed, and that the Penguin will report all of his intel to Batman going forward. And so that's the big thrust of the story. Meanwhile, there is a subplot that's important we're talking about. The Blue Boys, which of course are formerly the Gotham City Police Department, are also struggling with rival gangs. And we're seeing some more strife from within the department with guys like Foley declaring uh, that Jim Gordon's approach is flawed. And then Gordon, and, and this is really interesting because Gordon we don't. The, I don't know if I want you to tell us with whom he makes okay, the deal. And I was just just because say, it's not revealed, yeah. Right. Well, it, it is. I mean, it really, really is, but it's not. I mean, that's the beauty of it. So Gordon makes a deal with a mysterious person. We don't see the person's face. They don't reveal his name. Uh, but he makes a deal with somebody to basically take out a bunch of other gangs, and it really help, it pays off because the Blue Boys get more control of territory. And you're right. They don't say the character's name. You don't see their face. But if you read the conversation, and yeah. Gordon says... Every time I look in the mirror, I see him, and the mirror is cracked right down the middle. And Gordon yes. is seeing his face, one side's askew from the other. I, again, I won't say the name, but people, you should be putting that together right there. Uh, no, yeah, it, which was really beautifully cool. done. That yeah. was a good yeah really panel. Cool. And also, yeah, there are a lot of hints throughout, especially when he sends Montoya off, because that's a big clue who else would Montoya potentially parlay with. Yeah. But, but yeah, at, at the beginning when they have that shadowy conversation, it almost was like, is this Batman? Because he's right. he's he's upset. He's ruffled that he's there. And of course, Batman's in the shadows. But then there's just one thing that keys you that that's not it, because he makes some sort of comment of, you know, what type of man would let his wife and his daughter still be here. And so you realize, oh, Batman wouldn't ever say something like that. So it's got to be somebody else. And it's creepy. And it's, yeah, this person sought out Gordon. 
And then yeah. Gordon ultimately decides that it's worthwhile to make a deal with this person. So yeah. uh, it's one of Gordon's, again, shady decisions he makes, but he's he's making uh, the wrong decision for the right reasons, I guess is sure. the way to put it. Yeah. yeah. So what did you think of these issues? Yeah. So I first wanted to talk about just the title itself because there's some Latin history here, some oh. Roman culture. Yeah. So the idea of bread and circuses – uh, which is actually the Latin is panem et circenses. So it's this idea that any sort of politician or perhaps leader would either garner votes or keep the poor citizens happy through either, you know, free gain, grain, free grain or entertainment. So mm. potentially distract them from the problems that are going on by making them happy. And it was actually originated by a juvenile who was a poet. So just like a little a little sense there to give them, because that's in a sense what Penguin is actually doing. Right. He's got a good system going here. Uh, he's looking for power through popularity and it's working. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, like, it's like using Twitter to uh, make the masses not notice what's really going on. Oh, gosh. it's uh, But, you know, even when I was reading this, and I guess it's, it's similar to that ch- the church arc that I did, what was it, Fear or Faith with, with Michael Bailey, I was thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, why are these people betting their limited resources on a fight? Did you think that that was realistic? That yet, you know, they are really just the brainwashed masses, and it's really just working like in in Roman times. And of course, they would do this. Yeah, I, I didn't even blink about the betting part of it because I mean, if you look at we look at the uh, illegal gambling in the world, I mean, the people that get involved are the people who can't afford to do it anyway. But they do it because it's either an addiction or it's the excitement or whatever it is. And in this case, Penguin just knows exactly. I mean, he's playing the he's playing the Gotham crowd like a like a musical instrument. He's got this down. I mean, No Man's Land was was custom built for him. Really, it seems almost like you know it's perfect for what he does with the way he orchestrates people. So um, I never even blinked at the idea of them of them betting. But I also didn't put together kind of that idea that he's doing the the battles to entertain them and distract them. And yeah, that you make a real good point. Good. Observation. Yeah, I like the fact that well, this this whole arc actually I really very much enjoy. There's a lot of moving pieces going on in there, but with the tension at GCPD, it just everything is ramping up because in the the first part that we did, you could already see where there are some cracks uh, mm-hmm. with the Blue Boys, and you're kind of on the lookout of who is going to turn away. I think you know from Jim. And it just that that moment where they're talking about him and then Foley is criticizing Jim and he's carrying a dead cop in and it just runs throughout uh, our part here. Um, so we're, we're starting to see that even though Jim is a good leader and I, I think people believe in him that he doesn't have a perfect system going and, and some people are potentially going to be breaking away. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So I've, I've got a question for you. You could call it Please. a secret. You could call you could call it a secret question in honor of our good friend Sean Ross. But I already told you this one was coming. Is uh, so? What did you think of the arc in this arc? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I actually noted it when I was reading that I didn't really like it as much here. I, I think that it is good art, but I just didn't think that it was fitting for this particular arc. And personally, it felt almost. Like it had an all ages feel to it, like mm. it was art I could potentially open up and see in Batman Adventures, and it just seemed like the tone of it didn't match the tone and seriousness of the story that it was uh, representing. 
I agree most of it. I don't agree about the Batman Adventure side of it. I feel like it's like <laughs> um, indie art. Like you, know, okay. you would see this in an independent comic. Uh, I, I did a little research on this. The writer and artist is uh, Ian Eddington, and the artist is um, uh, D. Israeli. It's not his real name, but that's what he goes by. And apparently they work together quite often. They're kind of a duo is how it works. They're, they're British writers and artists, and they've created a whole bunch of series together. So obviously they're a package deal when DC hired them. You're right. The art doesn't fit. There's some great moments. There's some really cool illustrations in here. Some of the action is even a little better than I thought it would be, but some of the static shots just don't look right. Yeah, there's a couple of Batman shots where I can see why you say he looks animated series-ish, but in general, though, I feel like this is more like a, an, an indie comic that doesn't style that doesn't really fit with No Man's Land. So yeah, but I, in, I, there, there are moments I appreciate in it though. So uh, since, since I'm looking at this here, Batgirl's costume. So I wanted to comment. I didn't get a chance to comment, you know, obviously when Bailey and y'all were covering it. There's, there's not sure. a lot of Batgirl-heavy issues uh, in this one. So I will say right now, like, what did you think of Batgirl's costume? Did, how did, what's your feelings on this version of the costume? <laughs> yeah, it's so I, – I think, you know, when I first started – when I first saw this costume and really thought about it, I almost thought, like, it was almost inhuman – because mm-hmm. it's it's covered everywhere. There's like no personality about it. And I don't know if it's threatening or it's just this idea of anonymity, but it's so apart from, I think, you know, the Batgirl name, which is, you know, inter- because I, I feel like the costume that she's wearing is very much trying to be like Batman, but also shielding every part of her identity. Whereas mm-hmm. Batgirl, I think I always think of there being um, color and some fun attached to it. Usually, you know, the hair is flowing free, so there's very much that personality attached to it. And this is just the complete opposite. I kind of like the alien comment you made. It does feel a little alien because the eye, there's not even an eye. Like you know, Batman's always famous for having the eye hole, you know, the eye lenses, the opaque lenses, sure. or whatever, and things like that. And, and so does all you know, Robin and Nightwing, all of them. Nothing like that here. It's actually just a dark, shadowy, you know, K, uh, whatever you circle really where the eyes would be, um, mm-hmm. the face, the way it's stitched up. It's very creepy. Um, and now it, they. As far as her, sometimes they draw Batgirl very, very skinny and creepy and almost adds to the creepiness of it. Other times they make her a fairly uh, well-endowed hot lady. Awesome. You know, yeah, whatever, yeah, sure. So um, for me, it's it sort of always echoed to me Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman costume. Because okay. of all the stitching and things like right. that. There's all yeah. the stitching. And, and I can almost imagine this in like a creepy, high-gloss S&M vinyl, really. It's kind of almost like, like, like Michelle Pfeiffer's costume was. I almost see it as like almost like that. Yeah, and she had to be, and she was intentional about putting that last bit of material over her mouth because that's mm-hmm. the, you know, the stitching is there. Absolutely. Now I do like the the way the bat symbol's done because it's basically it's like the tags. It's right. it's not a solid Batman symbol. It's just the outline of a bat symbol, which is pretty mm-hmm. cool looking. But other than that, yeah, it's um it's an interesting look. All right, so that's all I had on this one. Okay, I do have one comment and one question mm-hmm. for you. Uh, the comment is about Oracle. We see that, and you mentioned in your recap as well that we see her getting contacted. Someone had a cell phone. Someone mm-hmm. used a landline. And we see later on in the story with Superman that the power is not really in many parts of the city, and we could potentially say all of the parts of the city. So is this a slight mistake where maybe no one should be able to contact that way? Well, I wonder how the cell phone's powered. 
I do wonder about that. I mean, they have batteries. We, we know that, in fact, they have a whole segment in here where they're buying or trading batteries with people. The landline, though, now I realize you were an infant back when landlines existed. Oh. But the beauty of landlines is they still work when electricity's off. At least the home lines do. I can't swear for a payphone, but I could tell you in the old days, our home phone would still work when the landline, when the power was out. So I could see why a landline might work. Now, didn't Barbara say early on in No Man's Land she also wired up like 10 phones in town or something like that to continue to work to, to call her? Uh, yeah, you might. Because, re- I mean, she still has power, so. Does she? Well, she's got. Ba- oh, I guess so. Yeah, her computers are working, doesn't she? Because she's fa- sort of hooked up to a new, an entirely different system. Yeah, in fact, one thing on her on her computer monitors in this one, it's got this weird icon, and it says Matt, M-A-T-T, and then it says OS, like operating system. So I don't know if that's an inside joke from the artist. I don't really know. But <laughs> it's uh, I wonder what that operating system is that Barbara's got. My final question about you. Well, it's funny because <laughs> before I go on to that, I can't remember what the exact joke was. But Nightwing, in a previous issue that I covered, was having trouble with his computer, and it's called, like, Doors or something, and he was like, stupid Doors 96 or something okay. instead of Windows, you know? Clever. So, it might be a final question before I ask you what your rating is of this. Why does Batman allow Penguin to continue operating, but he takes down, as we'll see later on, Black Mask and uh, tries to take down Two-Face later on? Well, for, for different reasons. Uh, Penguin is providing a service, a much-needed service, to help the Gothamites stay alive. The the bartering center, where they're bartering and getting you know people get food, they get whatever. They're bartering, and now he's taking, he's making a profit certainly, but he he's necessary. Penguin is necessary necessary for the no man's land system to work. I I think. Also, Batman needs the intel. Batman recognizes that he's got to operate differently, and instead of taking down every bad guy, he's got to measure them. And look, okay, Penguin provides a useful service. Yeah, he's skimming some money, but he's useful. Black Mask is a murderer. He is killing, he is destroying, he's doing nothing other than trying to take land and control people and all the disfiguring and stuff that we're going to talk about in a minute, too. So I think there's a a, a stark difference between the two. And uh, Two-Face really brings that upon himself, I would say, what happens later. But that's again, that get, that's probably going to get more into Donovan's uh, episode than mine. But Two-Face is going to do something that Batman can't forgive. Mm, sure. Yeah, and, you know, poor Two-Face, though, because we do see him, I think, in the Batman Chronicles story that we're covering, right? Mm-hmm. Where he is actually helping people out. So it's almost like he, I guess, one half of him deserves a chance. But I, I definitely see where you're going there. Uh, that Batman or that Penguin is, in fact, providing a service. Uh, you would think that he'd already have a couple strikes against him because of what he did with the the fear and faith. But he, I guess, Batman sort of has him. Yeah, that's weird. Actually, that is a strike against him because Batman already told him that he wasn't supposed to be doing this sort of stuff, and then he had to go see him again. Hmm. But uh, I guess <laughs> he, he's just on probation right now, and it'll be okay. Well, by the end of the story, now, keep in mind, you know, uh, Cobblepot's now working for Batman. Sure. I mean, whether he wants to or not, he, Batman has made yeah. it public that, you know, uh, Penguin, you work for me now. So it's it's a little bit of uh, control. I mean, and again, uh, all of this was tied to Batman needing to make sure people knew he was back and he was in charge. Yeah. I really, really, really want to talk about Gordon and this deal, but I will wait till later when we get to the other claim-jumping story before I start talking okay. about this one. Okay, okay. What would you give this out of ten? Well, for, all right, so I was trying to break it down in my mind of, like, mythology building, I think it's pretty high. 
because all the involvement with Penguin and understanding the way No Man's Land works and everyone finding out Batman's back. Mythology building, it's pretty big. From art, though, it takes a big hit for <laughs> art on my sure. in my book. So yeah. I'm going to give it um, – and I, may, I feel like I'm being too generous, but I'm going to give it a 7. So. Wow, okay. I'll raise you and say an 8. 8 out of 10. Really? You yeah. gave some of them last time an 8, so you're saying this is just as good as some of the ones from last time. Uh, the story, yeah, unless it's like really, really bad art, it doesn't impact it too much. I, I think I weigh heavily on the story more so okay. than the art. So. Well, I feel like comic books are a medium of both. So I know, I understand. Both. I okay. understand. Okay. Next right. up. Oof, this one's heavy, folks. So, it is. Uh, <laughs> we are going to do Mosaic. This is, this is big. So, writer Greg Rucka. Artist Frank Turan, I don't know if I'm saying that right. Odds are probably not, knowing my history of pronunciations. Yeah. Batman 565, Black Mask, has gone over the edge and altered his M.O., now leading a cult of self-mutilated crazies and trying to take over the city. Batman and Batgirl are all that stand in his way. Detective Comics number 732. How much blood will be spilled before Batman can take down Black Mask's cult? And where does Batman deposit the criminals he stops now that Gotham City's infrastructure is no more? Hmm, interesting. Okay. So the two most important things you need to know about this arc before we get into the details, folks. In the real world, Greg Rucka has arrived. <laughs> this is it. Right here. Now, he'd written three short stories prior to this for Batman Chronicles. That's sort of like the testing ground. But this is the first time they ever pulled out the big chair for him, writing the, the main Batman title. And then uh, in the comic fiction side of it, this is the one Batgirl fans, Barbara Gordon fans, I should say, have been waiting for. This is the story arc where Barbara Gordon finds out in the worst possible way. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, hold on to your cowl, because here we go. So since the quake, uh, Barbara Gordon has these reoccurring dreams of her glory days as Batgirl. When and whenever she awakes, she has to remind herself of the harsh reality of her new life in a wheelchair and what's going on in No Man's Land. Back with the Blue Boys, uh, there's more internal strife as Foley continues to complain about Gordon's methods, and now Gordon and his wife Sarah are also arguing, and they're arguing specifically about Batman. Gordon wants nothing to do with Batman because, as you mentioned earlier, you know Batman deserted Gotham in their hour of need. And even his daughter, Barbara Gordon, Babs, is trying to explain to Gordon that um, Batman actually represents hope for the people of Gotham. But Jim, he's just not hearing it. He's, he's not having that. Then we get to the creepy, 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 creepy section with Black Mask. That dude has gone scary. Uh, he's now leading this cult of self-mutilators. I mean, really, the way Frank Terran draws them, they look like zombies in this story, like from Walking Dead. And they're attacking the Blue Boy's territory. Their plan is to take down basically anything that's related to Wayne, because they, they view Wayne as representing Gotham. And specifically, in this one, they're going after the tower where Barbara Gordon happens to live. And not because she lives there, but it just, it's just a coincidence. So when Black Mask gets the upper hand, uh, Barbara actually makes plans to break her own personal moral code. She has got a high-powered rifle with a scope, and she is going to murder Black Mask to save herself and the surviving Blue Boys. It's a very powerful moment, reading up, leading up to the cliffhanger of the issue, as Babs is about to pull the trigger, and she actually says, thinks to herself she really hopes her dad will forgive her for committing murder. Interestingly enough, and there's no mention of her uh, hoping Bruce will forgive her, so that's thought interesting. Anyway, she begins to pull the trigger of her rifle, and just then the scope is blocked by this new figure arriving on the scene. And at that moment, Barbara Gordon 
former Batgirl, sees for the very first time the new Batgirl swinging into action. And this is how she found out there even was a Batgirl. Big, heart-wrenching moment for Babs fans. Um, not surprising, uh, Barbara is shocked and angry and pissed and everything you can imagine. She's completely bewildered, thinking, how could Batman do this to her? You know, the new Batgirl then takes down Black Mask and his cult, and then Barbara calls Batman to her tower, and she just lays into him verbally. She just rips him apart. I actually quoted some of the dialogue here, because I think it's relevant. You, you want to play Barbara here, and I'll play Batman? <laughs> you better sure, have some passion yeah. when you do this, too. Oh, gosh. I'm so sorry to my neighbors. Okay. Did you think I wouldn't find out? Did you think I honestly wouldn't care? Someone is out there being me. How dare you? How dare you do this to me? You know, it wasn't as simple as that. No. No, I don't know. I only know that some other woman is out there. Some other woman that isn't me. Some other woman with my legs. My identity. It just gives me chills. It's so good. Greg, I mean, your, your performance was excellent. But Greg Rucker's <laughs> script is just, just, when she says with some other woman with my legs, it's like, oh, God. Wow. Just powerful stuff. Um, by the end of it, uh, Batman and Barbara have kind of found a workable piece. Um, she trusts Batman. In fact, she even says she doesn't know how not to trust him. Uh, and she does not like another woman out there as Batgirl. And she says she's going to find out who it is because Batman won't tell her. Uh, but she can deal with it for now. She's decided. Now, also in this story, we do find out where Batman has been stashing all the folks he apprehends. Uh, that's Blackgate Prison, which is now Batman's basically his pr- personal jail. And he has it run by the former villain, Lockup. And Lockup's actually using help from the inmates with folks like such as KGB to control it. Now, I have a question for you here, Stella, because obviously we have a lot to unpack with Babs, sure. and we got to do that. But my first, que- my question here is for you. In this issue, uh, in this story, we see Jim Gordon tending his garden quite a bit. I believe it's the first time we see his garden, actually. I'm, I, I can't promise that, but I'm pretty sure. Why does Jim Gordon have a garden, and what does it represent? <laughs> this is like a question that would appear on... Required reading with Tom and Stella. Okay. I'll take that as a compliment. Uh, Thank you. Well, yeah, just because it's, you know, a a deep question. Why does he have a garden and what does it represent? I think it's something he can control potentially or at least manage it in his own way. Of course, he can't control nature, but he can actually, I think, care for it in the manner that he wants to. And it's uh, pure and simple and it probably gives him a break away from because we all need those sorts of things where we, you know, try to break away from the tedium. And here he's got a lot of stress going on. So I think it's a way to potentially calm down and get away from all the garbage that's going on. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Uh, For me, I think it represents a chance to create life. Okay. Him and Sarah aren't going to have any kids, not at their age. Sure. But how do you breathe life into something that's dying is you give it new life. And I think that's what the garden is supposed to represent is is growing something healthy, growing something alive, making something yeah. happen. That, that's how I read it. And I think um, there's certainly hope there, too. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's true. Yeah. Um, and, and I wonder, you know, if we were to pick Greg Rucka's brain or – because I don't know if Greg Rucka introduced the idea of the garden. It certainly appears throughout – you know, the no man's land going forward here. I, I wonder what they were thinking it represented. I mean, it, is it just a good place for Jim to have good drama moments? Because it is. It's a place for him to have quiet discussions. He has some, hell, there's some really powerful discussions he has with Batman later on in that garden. So it's, um, I don't know, I, that, that's my take. I think it's a place to create life. That's what I think. But uh, it's, it makes a great storytelling framework, or, or at least a setting in, in the no man's land saga. So, Babs, huh? Okay. Oh what you got? 
Oh, wow. I loved this story, but I also <laughs> hated the story. Really? Yeah, well, well, I loved it, but I mean, it was it was painful. It was oh, yeah. painful to, to watch all of that go down. It, you are absolutely right. I think Greg Rucker really hits the character moments, and it's so poignant. And I think that the words coming out of out of Barbara Gordon are right there, and absolutely makes sense. And it's just, yeah, it's hard to watch. I mean, especially when she starts off saying that she's been dreaming of being Batgirl, mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting because she she pinpoints it to specifically being since the quake and so i feel like i I don't know if that means you know that's sort of the start of the end for for gotham and so when bad stuff really started to happen that's when it started really multiplying for her and increasing her time thinking about being back girl but yeah to see somebody else and and then it gets worse because she realizes who it is she doesn't At, at this moment, but it gets that's that's a really big nail in the coffin. But just to see someone else out there it is, whoo, yeah. And for the quake, I would imagine that the quake reference would be more so. And, that, and maybe I'm wrong here, but that's pretty much when Babs kind of got stuck in the tower at that point. Sure, um, that's true. So that's where I would put it as. But as far as I mean, am I going too far in saying that I think this this story right here, Mosaic, is possibly the most important Barbara. St- mythology story if you will since um since she became oracle is that is that fair to say wow. or you think i'm overstepping my boundaries since she became oracle yeah since, since she got established as oracle and then you know she's done a lot of stuff she had a lot of adventures but i think this is again and i could be wrong where the first time her new life has really been challenged with yeah her. i think it's a changing point but yeah, I would agree. I think there are other minor ones that I, I might mention. Um, I think also in Birds of Prey, the hunt for Oracle is also a big moment for her. But yeah, I would agree here. And not that only that, her yet? life is... Has that what? happened yet? The hunt for no, Oracle? not yet. Yeah, not I was saying yet. Birds of Prey hasn't oh, even started so since, this point, right? Since, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah I, I would agree. And, you know, her life is challenged. And just the fact that there's almost like no going back now. Like she really can't go back and be Batgirl. Right. Yeah. Oof. Okay, so here is my secret question for you. This one is in, in tribute to Sean Ross because I didn't tell you this one was coming. It is. Um, did Batman owe it to Barbara to tell her about Batgirl before now? <laughs> I think that's funny because I had something. I can't remember what I uh, wrote here. Yeah, is Batman wrong here? Oh, well, I guess I, yeah, I ask, uh, is Batman wrong here to let Batgirl even operate and to not tell Babs who it is? I think he did owe it to her. I think, and, and, you know, people have been against me with this for the most part, but I I feel like I'm in my own corner. But I (laughs) honestly feel like there's been this tension between Barbara and Bruce ever since the killing joke. And, I think there are times when it's really obvious and it's really bad and there are times where they're okay, like you even say in your notes that they get to kind of an okay place at the end of this point. But he was just not thinking about her and, you know, he's thinking about Gotham City, but of all the people, I think he really did owe it to her to say something to her that, you know, there's a there's another Batgirl coming around because it's like one of those things where almost, you know, maybe you break up with somebody and that person starts dating somebody or, you know, like a cheating situation, maybe mm-hmm. 
And, you know, it's better to find out potentially from a friend than to, like, witness the cheating in progress. Right. And so this is very much witnessing the cheating. And so I I think he really did owe it to her. And I, uh, yes, I fault Batman. And, and I think he made some poor decisions here. And it's funny. When I first wrote that question uh, a week or so, or so, I, in my head, thought, no, Batman didn't owe it to her. Because he had nothing to do with this individual becoming Batgirl. I mean, he arrived in Gotham, and she already was. And she was already operating out there. So I thought to myself, no. In fact, I even went as far as to say, Barbara, with all of her contacts, shouldn't she have already known about Batgirl mm-hmm. by now? You know, that's a fair question to ask. But but now I've come around, not just our discussion, but i come around the last couple of days thinking, yeah, you know what? He really does owe it to Babs to tell her. I mean, there's even scenes in that last issue we covered, Bread and Circuses, where he's on the Bat Radio, remote radio, right? And he's talking to Babs, and Batgirl's right behind him. I mean, she's in the room with him while he's on the radio. He could have just gone, oh, oh, by the way. <laughs> you know, he could have mentioned it. You're right. He absolutely could have. Yeah. Now, I do feel like, you know, there is some nice moments where Batman, you know, he does try and explain to her, says, Barbara, this, it was this way when I returned. You know, he says that. He goes, no pain I ever caused you was my choice. I never wanted to hurt you. I know that makes no difference. And he said, I need you to trust me. So, I mean, there's, he's trying to make up for it. But and there, there's a show on TV that I know you've never heard of. It's called Doctor Who. And in the show, oh, um, this imaginary in, in the more recent years, there's an actor who plays the role called Peter Capaldi. And he is an ornery jerk just mean he ha- he is not in touch with his feelings i mean he's an alien but he's not in touch with his feelings he doesn't really care when he hurts people's feelings in fact he, he calls human beings pudding brains and he he just basically wants if he's trying to save you he just wants you to shut up and let him save you he doesn't really want you to talk to him or anything like that and he there's a companion of his called clara and for a long time she was helping him with his you know communicating with people and being nicer to people in fact she made like little flashcards for him like when he'd be in a situation like do you need some help is there anything i can do to make you feel better you know questions that he would never think to ask himself but uh, basically prompting him to try and be a better person. And that's kind of like what Batman needs. Batman's the same way. He's super efficient, like we were talking about earlier with Greg Rucka. He just doesn't care what other people's feelings are. He is too busy. And so it almost is like he needed someone else to nudge him to say, hey, hey Batman, you might want to tell Babs. Because uh, I, I don't think it ever even occurred to him. I don't think he was hiding it because he was nervous. I just think his brain doesn't process that way. <sighs> I know. Just like when he put that playing card on her lap when she was in the hospital after the killing joke. Right? Yeah. Just... Is that supposed to make her feel better? No. No. No, not at all. He's just yeah. not programmed to be a nice person. So. Yeah. So, all right. Another secret question. Sure. Uh, and maybe you can't answer this till next episode when the okay. identity is revealed. Yeah. But is the new Batgirl worthy of the cowl? Not necessarily uh-huh. speaking out this per- this person's history as Supergirl, as I mentioned earlier. But it's a little joke, by the way, folks. You're supposed to laugh. Anyway, but as, wah, 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 there we go. In their action, or the shag laugh. <laughs> it's supposed to be that little dog from Laugh Olympics. Um, you know, okay. you probably don't know what that is. It was before you were actually born, believe it or not. Yeah, anyway, Batgirl in the role as Batgirl, has she proven herself to be worthy of the cow, the new one? Yeah. You're supposed to answer that. No, no. I- Gosh, can't I think before spitting things out? I see, I'm kind of okay with this character. I'm not, it's hard for me also to be like 
objective because I feel for Barbara Gordon. But if I were to take Barbara Gordon and her feelings out of the picture, I would say yes. I, I think that she honestly tries, and I think that she's been proving herself a great deal in these stories. Uh, she's It's not been perfect. She has um, had some trouble and everything. But I, I think that she could absolutely take on this cow and grow into it as long as she's given a benefit of the doubt and actually the ability to grow into it because, of course, Batman does his, you know, one strike you're out situation with her. Yeah. Uh, actually, specifically three strikes. But again, you'll have to save that for next time. For when you one? Well, one strike for Stephanie as Robin. That's why I mentioned that. That was another editorial crammed down their throats kind of thing. I mean, honestly, oh. and I haven't, well, I haven't reread that story in years. And maybe you guys, you know, I'm sure someone who's really deep into it will remember. But the way I remember that happening was he, in my mind at least, Batman put Stephanie in the Robin costume just to piss off Tim. Basically, just his way of saying, oh, you're not going to stay, Tim? Oh, look, I, I've got someone else. Oh, trying to get Tim to come back. That's the way I remember that story in my head. Maybe it's not how it played out in the comic, but that's how I felt like Bruce was doing at that point. But that's a whole different thing. I think she's worthy of the cowl. I think Batman's really mean to her. If you read these issues, yeah. I mean, he is yep. horrible to her. Like He's like, well, you're not yep. worthy of the cowl then if you can't do what I want. And it's like, wow, mm. dude, cut her some slack. But again, it's probably the history is what's driving that. Um, yeah. So Batman's history with this person before they ever put on yep. the cowl. So um, yeah, it, it, it's it's an interesting question, and I think uh, after you talk about next episode, it'd be worthy re-examining that question. Sure, I'll absolutely be doing that. All right. Do you think Babs is justified in her uh, in her feelings? Yes, except for forgiving Batman. <laughs> sure. I think she forgave him too quickly. Uh, I think that she should have been pretty much like. F you, buddy, uh, would have been more like it. But she's got to work with him. Like she said, she she doesn't know how not to trust him. So I guess that's part of it. Is it's is it a brainwashing? You know, is is it a sick sort of way where like she's helpless around him and she can't help but do his work because she's been brainwashed to help him? Or is it a genuine family like love? Or is it a commitment to the cause? I don't I don't know. But mm-hmm. uh, I feel like she should have been angry longer. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. And, and you know, maybe they wanted to soften her, I don't know, and, and make it so that she's not like this angry hag for the entire run. But I think she deserves to be angry. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So the art was very different, too, by the way. I forgot to mention that. Frank Terran, um, he's known for his run. Before this, he was doing The Punisher. So it's a very different. I mean, if you look at this art compared to the previous art, world's different. And this is very scratchy and, and lots of dark, heavy lines or mm-hmm. da, da, dark, heavy areas and very, very scratchy, scratchy, scratch. <laughs> Still not typical Batman art, though. No. Did this uh, work better for sort you? Sort of like not one? like the house style. Yeah, I really like this. I think it matched what the story was mm-hmm. very well. Yeah, I would agree. Absolutely. Okay. Some other things just to talk about is the fact that Batman is using and working with Lockdown and I think was a KG beast. Yeah. Yeah, so they're in control of the prison, which is an interesting story point because people want to get into the prison uh, because yeah. it's safe, but Batman just wants the bad guys in there. And then what something that I really liked is are the fights that are breaking out because relations between Sarah and Jim are not very good. I love at the very beginning how he tells her, don't finish that t- sentence, and she does. Mm-hmm. And, she, you know, she walks away. But they have this interesting scene where there's a layout of the fights between Jim and Sarah occurring side by side with Batman and Babs. 
And I just thought that it was choreographed really well because it was going back and forth between the two. Uh, luckily, both parties make up <laughs> at the end, uh, Jim and Sarah, in, a, in an entirely different way than <laughs> Batman and Babs do. But well, more yeah, like the Killing Joke animated movie version there for. Oh, gross! Let yeah. us not talk of. Such I know, things. I know. Sorry. Yeah, Jim gets it on. You want to see an old man <laughs> with white hair without a shirt on getting it on with a beautiful oh, redhead? Man. There it is, right there. He does. It happens a lot in the novelization too. Yeah. I did wonder. You mentioned how they can't have kids anymore, but it always seems like Sarah is significantly younger than Jim. Well, if you read year one, I mean, I didn't think they were that different in age. She was, you know, a few years younger. I guess, I guess you're right. Maybe there could still be kids in the future. But I kind of figured he was in his 50s and she was in her 40s is kind of how I placed it. But, okay. I mean, you can still have kids in your 40s. It's just a little risky. And No Man's Land is certainly not a place I would want to bring a baby into. Sure, no. Yeah. So I'm going back to the Black Great Prison. I'm trying to find the oh, sure. pages with that. Because, yes, Batman's working with Lockup. And I really need to find these pages because I don't think that Batman knows KG Beast is involved. Okay, actually. so you just think he's dealing with lockup? Yeah, because um, yeah, Batman's only talking to lockup, and when when Batman leaves, then you see KG Beast because subsequent issues do talk about, uh, especially the Nightwing ones, when he gets involved taking care of Blackgate, on how lockdown or lockup has brought in inmates to help him run the place is what he's done. You know, and so I don't know that Batman knows KGBs is involved. Okay. So, all right, yeah, should, we, should we rate this story? Changes things. A question that I actually wasn't sure, and then I'm done. But what happens at the end with Tally Man? And is he in the jail? I wasn't really sure what to do with that scene at the end. I Did you know? I think he's in the jail. That's, that was the same sense I got, was that he was a black gate. But... Uh, you know, looking at it, I guess he, maybe he's not. Maybe it's just foreshadowing for whatever Tallyman's doing there. I, is it Black Mask he's killing, or just one of the henchmen? I. Oh. Let me see here. Uh, at first, I thought it was Black Mask getting wasted, and then I thought, well, no, it's just a henchman. It's unclear because, again, I've I've read all these issues with you, and I've read one or two ahead, and Tallyman's not in any of that. So I don't. Yeah. Really, I guess it's not Black Mask. Although Black Mask is dropped off at Blackgate. You know, I don't have an answer to that. And until, okay. until Tallyman shows up again, I don't know that we will have an answer to that. Okay. Now, have you finished reading, rereading No Man's Land? No, I'm just doing it. For the show? For, for the show, yeah. Yeah, okay. So I, I don't even know if Tallyman shows up again. So okay. we'll have to find out. People at okay. home are screaming into their you know, iPhones. They, they and probably are. Phones. No, it happens this way. <laughs> right. oh, okay. Yeah, so now we can read it. What, what you would got? you say? Oh, I got to go oh. first, don't I? I think well, you're the guest. Um, I'm really torn on this one. Okay. Uh, I'll tell you. I'll tell you right. Again, it's getting at least a nine. I know oh, that. Oh sure. I'm trying to decide if it's a nine point five. Um, it, it, as much as I like the art, it was interesting. It's not my favorite art, so I'm going to give it a nine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, 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 it could be a nine point five, maybe, but nine. Nine point two five. There it is. Nine point two five. 9.25. I think I, I'll step you up and say a 9.5. I just think with the whew, the tension, the fights, uh, the wonderful character moments, um, and you know, however sad it is on my heart, Barbara Gordon's character moments here. I just think it was really well done, and especially just the overlay with the black mask and, and talking about you know shedding shedding your mask and everything and that connecting to Barbara Gordon as well as uh, the new Batgirl. I, yeah, I think it was just really well done with lots of layers. So 9.5. Yeah. Okay. 
fair enough. I'm not going to argue with any of that. It's a great story, and it's a great Bab story. So, absolutely. All right. Up next, Batman Chronicles number 16. Uh, so this is three different stories, folks. Here's the description. Gotham Central's detective Renee Montoya finds her brother alive and well in the aftermath of the earthquake, keeping company with the neighborhood Good Samaritan, Two-Face. <gasps> what? Uh, plus, a young couple tries to survive in an apartment that was once the Joker's hideout. And what has Harold been up to since the quake? All right, so we'll run through these. Um, I guess we'll do a rating for the issue, not for each individual story. Is that fair? Yes. Okay. All right. So the first story is called Two Down, written by, oh, Greg Rucka, what up? Uh, artist <laughs> is Jason Pearson and Cam Smith. Now, keep in mind, this is a flashback story. So you were talking about the two different versions of Two-Face. Well, this takes place before No Man's Land. It's after Cataclysm, but before No Man's Land, which is why you think you're going to see a different version of Two-Face. Uh, Renee Montoya is working herself too hard, and she's given a mandatory 48-hour break from work. So she returns home to find out that her brother is missing, and she investigates. It turns out he's been running with Two-Face and his gang, except they're helping people. What? So for two days, Montoya works side-by-side side with Two-Face, while each of his coin flips comes up on the clean side. Harvey Dent is once again working to help Gotham. Hmm. All right. Uh, the second story is called The Comforts of Home, written by Scott Beatty, art by uh, Damon Scott and Wayne Foucher. And, we'll, and this story is not about Batman at all. Uh, while scouting for supplies, a couple stumbles upon the apartment of the Joker. Uh, it's a pretty creepy tale as it unfolds. Well, the couple, uh, in the end, they end up escaping moments before the apartment explodes thanks to the help of Batgirl. And in a twist ending, the couple gets away, but the woman still dies as she's poisoned by a soda they stole from Joker's apartment. She gets the smiley with the creepy smile. Uh. Yep. Yeah, And the final story is called Harold, written by Denny O'Neill, art by Chris Renard and Sam Bushima. And it, it, or Sal Bushima, I'm sorry. Yeah. And ba Batman's friend and mechanic Harold barely escapes from the collapse of the Wayne Manor during the earthquake and all that. Harold then flees the rubble of the manor after an encounter with the distraught Alfred in a conversation that goes not the way either one of them hoped. Uh, yeah. Harold then finds renewed purpose in the opportunity of fixing the wrecked Gotham. So we don't know where Harold is at this point. So, Three very different stories. Uh, yes. What did you think of Two Down? I like Two Down. It's, you know, I've read, what's it called? Gotham Central? Gotham City Central? Yeah, Gotham Central. Yeah, the comic. That yeah. Gotham Central. And so I was wondering, is this where he becomes smitten with her? Because if you've read that, you know that Two-Face uh, very much falls in love with Montoya. Okay. But it also shows that... You know, Two-Face, however much of a villain he is, there is still that side of him that wants to do good. It's still that Harvey Dent side of him. So I liked seeing this. And it does give you hope that maybe he's out there in no man's land and helping people. But we'll find out later what he's actually doing. The art was wild. I, I called it 90s art with wild uh, Two-Face hair. Really? See, Would you I, agree? I his love, hair is crazy. Oh, his hair is crazy. Yeah, he's absolutely crazy. But I love <laughs> this art so much. Maybe it's because I'm a product of the 90s. No, I liked so it much. too, but I just thought that it's like his hair was crazy. Yes, it's absolutely nuts. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's an extreme – not only is it extreme in the 90s. Extreme. Kind of, no, it's not that kind of extreme. But oh. it is a um, – well, maybe it is a little bit. <laughs> it's a very uh, exaggerated, cartoonish version. And the art is even borders on a little bit of cartoony. It's, it's like cool 90s, you know, fun art with a little taste of almost um, maybe a little bit of animated series, maybe a little bit of cartooniness in there. Yeah. I adore this artwork. In fact, out of every story we've covered so far tonight, this is my favorite art. I just love it. Oh, wow. It. Okay. 
So I, I really like this story. I love when Harvey Dent does the right thing. Like, yeah. and maybe I'm, sorry, I'm just very invested in the character. I have been all for years in far as just how much I love the Harvey Dent side of Two-Face. And maybe it's because of the way I met him. One of the earliest Batman stories I ever read as a collector was Batman Year One. And Harvey's a good guy in that. And sure. maybe that's why I'm so you know enamored with the Harvey Dent side of him versus the Two Face side of it. So I was thrilled as I read this, and every coin flip, man, I was on edge every time he flipped that coin. I'm like, oh god, don't let it come up bad, don't let it come up bad, don't let. And it never did. And it just Harvey Dent helps everybody. And then, mm-hmm. and then towards the end, I started wondering, like, I wonder if someone gave him a rigged coin, so it's only clean. But either way, great story. Yeah. Yep, yep. And this is one of the ones we talked about that's filler. This is not a mythology-building story. This is, and in fact, every story in this collection is just filler, and yet it still touched me. I loved it. Yeah, yep. And oftentimes, I, I have a rough relationship with Chronicles because sometimes it's hard to, I don't know, I just haven't enjoyed it throughout. There have been some really interesting stories. Like the last time I read it, I think, was during Cataclysm, actually. And it was, or maybe it was Road to No Man's Land, but it was this really interesting story with Barbara, with Oracle and... Man, bat. Okay. Um, but for the most part, yeah, the, the, I don't know. It's it's hit and miss. But this, I think, was pretty good. Well, all of those 90s sort of standalone stories in any of the Batman or Superman families, it was always a gamble. You know, when it was Showcase, like Showcase 93, Showcase 94, sure, all those, yep. every issue had a, uh, had a story with, for the first couple of years, it was Batman characters, and then it was Superman characters, and then it would change and whatnot. But it was always a gamble. It's like sometimes you're going to get a gem like this, and sometimes you're going to get a real stinker. And you know, there was also Superman Man of Tomorrow, just like there was, and there was Batman Chronicles, and there was, you know, all these different anthology or standal, you know, infrequent stories that were just kind of, you never know. But it worked out well here. All right, Comforts of Home. Um, let's see, writer Scott Beatty and artist Damon Scott and Wayne Foucher. Um, oh, we already read all the description. I'm sorry. So this one, uh, super creepy. When they find Joker's apartment, uh, yep. and, and the phone keeps ringing, and there's like a desecrated body of representing Robin in there. I mean, this one was like genuinely gave me the creeps. It was creepy and it was annoying because I didn't understand why the husband wasn't listening to the wife's repeated warnings. That's true. And I also didn't understand why Batgirl waited so long to get to the couple because she's there when they enter. I mean, Is she really? I would have thought that she would have like swooped down right away and said, you shouldn't go in there. What do you mean she's there when they get there? Where do you see that? Oh, she's oh, she's, she's watching like, them. Yes. Oh, yeah. So, but she doesn't jump in until the last minute. So I thought, what's going on? Yeah, good point. Yeah, I mean, they find all these dead hostages. There's this... I don't know. I don't know how Joker put a water, like a, a swimming pool, in his apartment. I don't quite get that. Yeah. <laughs> but with laughing fish and dead bodies, sure. and I mean, it's and also, yeah. Why didn't they just freaking leave? You know, like yeah. the minute it got too creepy, I'd be like, I am out of here. It's like a bad yeah. horror movie when they just won't leave the haunted house. You're like, come on, really? I would have ran from by now. So that that was, I could see that annoying part. But um, in the in the twist ending was very much a sort of like a um. Tales from the Crypt kind of moment where you're like, oh, you thought they were going to get away, but they didn't. Yeah. So. And, of course, it was the the wife who was trying to get them away from it the whole time anyway. She's the one who gets it. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. All right. Next one is uh, Harold, which yeah. is – it's. This one is probably, to, in my feeling, like almost the most disposable of them. <laughs> yeah. It was short, too. Yeah. It, except for the really powerful moments where he's remembering – I guess it's maybe it's his mother – or uh, someone, some female in his life that clearly raised him is yeah. yelling, get out of my sight. Do you hear me? Get out. 
Yep. And uh, and then, unfortunately, Alfred just says the wrong thing at the wrong moment. I don't think Alfred meant to chase Harold off. I think yeah. Alfred was just, you know, everything Alfred has done in his li- in adult life since he got out of being a spy or whatever the hell he did, he was in that house, you know, in Wayne Manor, taking care of it. And here it has collapsed. And he's just like, Harold, I, c- I can't do this with you right now, is what he's basically saying. But instead, he basically tells Harold to go away, and so Harold does. And it's very sad. Uh, so it, it, the contrast of this woman screaming at him and Alfred, I think, is the most powerful piece of it. Yeah, I, I had hoped that his intention was just to give him space in that moment. But I think Harold, because of his history, took it to mean, like, go really far away and yeah. away away. And so it was it was pretty sad because then when that happens, you look negatively upon Alfred. Like, right. Alfred, why did you just do that? Since Yeah. So uh, do we see Harold again? Do you remember? I don't know if we see him in No Man's Land. I know we see him later in a not, okay. good, in a not good way. Oh, dear. Um, I won't say any more about that. Was it but, War Games? I, I don't know. Oh, okay. I, I don't know. Just so you know what Alfred says. And sort of in his defense, he goes, uh, Alfred uh, – Harold's trying to fix the Batmobile, and at this point, it's a lost cause. And Alfred says, Harold, I wouldn't bother with that right now. Um, I know there and, – and, and even though he can't communicate, Harold can't speak, he does communicate sort of through different ways. And he's, he's basically trying to say he's trying to repair the Batmobile. And Alfred says, I know, but there's more important matters to concern me. And Alfred and, – and Harold's still not getting it. And he's like, there's more important things than to fix stuff? Then what should I do? And Alfred just can't – this is the point where Alfred makes the mistake by accident. He, he basically says, please just go away until I call you. And again, you, you got to look at it from Alfred's point of view. The mansion just collapsed. His entire life is gone, you know? And, and so that's why he made the, that unfortunate comment. Yeah. So here, I, I have a secret question for you. Okay. How do you reconcile this version of Two Face with the version we know to come in No Man's Land? Oh wow! I think they're similar. They're similar because he is—he's willing to have alliances and he's willing to do good. But I think the Cataclysm one that we read here, he's doing good. I think selflessly, but with the No Man's Land, he's doing good. With some sort of end goal in mind, mm-hmm. he's more of the two-faced villain, I think, in No Man's Land. Like, there's a lot more shade over the character than there is with the the Cataclysm story that we saw. Yeah, I, I almost can't reconcile the two. There, I, I really feel like they're very different. The the Cataclysm one is he's he's happy to be doing good. He's he is a genuine hero. He's digging in deep. Whereas I feel like in No Man's Land, instead of like in the Cataclysm one, he flips the coin and he goes to save people. In the No Man's Land, I think it's more like I flip the coin so I don't murder you is is the kind of version of Two-Face I think we see in No Man's Land stories. I feel like it's just – I feel like they're almost too different. Um, Can you explain it away, you think, just with the fact that that's his identity being two different people? Yes and no. I – I think it's almost a bridge too far, though. I, I think okay. almost, and I'm not saying I, I think the No Man's Land one is probably the more correct characterization than the Cataclysm version, even though I just love this story because it's so upbeat. <laughs> yeah, it's like after reading all these dark stories that are pulling your soul down, and you read this upbeat story, you can't help but love it. It's like yay! But I don't think uh, Two Face was cata- you know, was really shown in the right light. I don't think that's I don't think that was Two Face. I don't think that really was you know uh, indicative of how he really should act. Much as I want him to, because I love him. Sure. And his 90s sure. hair. So. And his 90s hair. Yep. All right, so we should rate this one as one collected edition. Sounds good. Okay. I'm going to give it a 7. 
Um, seven and a half, we'll say. Seven and a half. I enjoyed it. I thought it was fine. It was good. Um, mythology building's low. Art is fairly high, actually. Um, really love the first story. Kind of like the second story. Kind of like the third story. So, seven and a half. I think I'll agree with you. Uh, when I'm comparing it with, like, Bread and Circuses, I think it needs to be a little bit lower yeah. than that. So I would say 7.5 as well. And I would rate it, I think the order that the stories are probably the order of, like, best uh, not as good. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. I mean, the whole collection is worth it for two down. It really is. Uh, so, but it's, um, yeah. And, and that 7.5 is not supposed to be a knock. Don't, I mean, keep in mind that's oh, still... Oh, of course a, not. Yeah. yeah. So... All right. Well, we've still got 84 more issues to go, so we should pick up the pace. All right. Uh, Legends of the Dark. It sounds like you're falling asleep or you're in a tunnel or something. There. I'm not. It, does it really? Well, you were, you, you, your voice was getting kind of like that. I figured you were Oh, just, it's like, because I was looking down. down at my comics to find the next issue. Yeah, like so, the story. I, okay. So sorry. Uh, Legends of the Dark Knight number 118. <laughs> it's called Balance. Uh, written yeah. by, oh, what's that name again? Greg Rucka. Uh-oh. Artist Him. by, I'm sorry, what? Him, I said. Hey, that guy. He's everywhere, yeah. right? Art, Jason Pearson and Jace, uh, James Hodgkins. So Jason Pearson did our two down story. We'll see if we like the art here with a different inker. So we learn how Alfred has spent his time since Gotham's fall as he shares a campfire story, one that bears a striking resemblance to his relationship with the Dark Knight with a group of orphans. Okay. So uh, just giving you the quick sort of view of this one. The summary pretty much said it all, folks. I mean, Alfred's relating this fanciful version of his activity since No Man's Land. He's describing himself as a squire to Batman's knight, and there's these bratty, like, doubting orphans that are, for the most part, eventually won over to his side, as Alfred tells his tales of helping people, uh, and fighting gangs and working with Batman. It's um, it's just a short little uh, vignette of what's going on with Alfred. So, um, what'd you think of it? Yeah, I, I appreciated – see, I opened my comic so I could find it. I appreciated the quote at the end by Woodrow Wilson where it says, There is something better, if possible, that a man can give than his life that is his living spirit to a service that is not easy. And, yeah, I mean that hands down describes Alfred right there. And in a way, you know, it's him helping the kids deal with the situation of being in no man's land through escapism, you know, telling the story – and oftentimes stories are better when they're modeled on true life, you know, art representing life. So I, I think this was fun. I don't know. It's not my favorite one-off, but it is nice to get a little highlight of what Alfred is up to in No Man's Land besides besides running around in a mask and pretending to be a homeless person like he right. did in part one. Yeah. Um, I think there is absolutely nothing uh, offensive about this story at all, but it's also not all that interesting to me. Offensive? Um, well, I mean, I, well, I was I was trying to say it doesn't do much for me, but there's nothing about it's actually offensive. It's just not that exciting for me. Sure. Um, the art is okay. I think Cam Smith is a much better inker, meaning the the previous story, the two down we did. I think Cam Smith's a much better inker for James uh, Jason Pearson than James Hodge uh, Hodgins. Uh, so I, the art isn't is quite exciting as I, as I think it was in the two down story. So it, I, I think it's fine. I, I don't have anything to dislike about it, but I also am not real wowed by it. It's kind of like, okay, that was fine. Very disposable, uh, very filler, uh, move on kind of thing. Yeah, I agree. For that reason, I would probably give it seven bats. Again, not a criticism, but it <laughs> doesn't do a lot for me. Yeah, seven, I, I would agree with you. Yep. So, all right. Uh, next one. Uh, this one's this one's a really interesting piece. Shadow of the Bat, number 86, Home Sweet Home. Writer Elisa Klink 
and artist Guy Davis. So it's described as a moving, self-contained tale of a courageous, stubborn old man caught between rival gangs and the determination to protect the, uh, the only home he's ever known, a home that is in the heart of no man's land. So again, the summary kind of says it all. Um, basically, there's no real superheroes in this. It's just a man trying to protect his home. It's almost like the old man from Pixar's Up. You know, like like he he lives in this house for decades as the neighborhood changes around him, and he doesn't you know he doesn't want to leave his house. Sure. And then no man hap- no man's land happens around him, and he defends his home from you know various thugs and gangs, and eventually ends up meeting Joker face to face in his own house. So um, I really liked this one. I also like this. It was an interesting character study, and I thought it showed how often power switches between gangs because mm-hmm. you got to witness that as it went. And he's very much also the nail, right, of when all the, the city is falling down. Uh, he's the one constant that's that's been there, and I enjoyed how he also sticks it to the system and is helping his neighbors out and, and standing up against the people as well he he's a he's a fun guy even though he is sort of a get off my lawn sort of guy as well yeah i don't think i'd want to be his neighbor i think he'd be like a crappy neighbor to have but uh, are you sure he was giving that woman who came up with like her baby and got stuff if i'd been able to finish my sentence oh uh, i can't get a word in edgewise because you talk so much (laughs) Uh, I, I shouldn't interrupt the one time you speak on the show. I'm sorry. That's true. Um, I wouldn't want to be his neighbor because I think he would complain about like my dog or something. But I'd want to be in his neighborhood. Sure. So that's where I was going to go with that. Is that I would I, I think he'd be rough to live directly next to, but being right around the corner from him would be a great thing. So, um, some interesting stuff about this one. So Guy Davis does the artwork, right? And I, are you familiar with Guy Davis at all? No. Okay. For me, he's best known as do, as the art on Sandman Mystery Theater, which was all about Wesley Dodds in the 1940s. Amazing comic book. Uh, very dark and very uh, disturbing to read because it's all about Sandman fighting hate crime in the 1940s. So there's some really dark stuff. It was a Vertigo book. Uh, but Guy Davis is just this amazing illustrator. He does a lot of detail work. The people all look very interesting, very distinct. I love his work. Now, the writer, Lisa Klink, I had never heard of her. Have you heard of this lady at all? No. Okay, I did a little research on her because I was like, I've never even heard of her. So uh, apparently she began her writing career in the world of Star Trek, writing episodes for TV of Deep Space Nine and Voyager. And she even wrote an attraction for a a Star Trek theme park uh, or a theme park attraction sort of thing. Interesting. And after this story for Batman, she wrote a a book called Dead Man or a series of novels called Dead Man. Uh, And then, interesting enough, she is a five-time champion on Jeopardy. Wow. I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. Okay. She uh, she concluded her run on an ironic note by missing a final Jeopardy question about, of all things, women authors. So oh. how crazy is that? So, again, another filler issue. You don't yep. need to read this at all, but I think you should because it's very <laughs> yeah. entertaining. So do I always have to go first with a rating? Is that how it works, or can you ever go first? <laughs> do you want me to go first? Sure. On this one, we'll make you go first. I think a solid nine for me, nine out of ten bats. I, I was going to give it 8.5. So, yeah, I liked it that much. I mean, I really, really enjoyed this one. It's it, There's not really any mythology building, so that's probably the only ding wow. against it. But it's really a good, solid story. I dug it. It is. Yep. All right, up next is Batman number 566 called Visitor, uh, written by Kelly Puckett and art by John Bognadov and Eduardo Barreto. It says, The Man of Steel comes to Gotham City, insisting that he can help reshape the city's faction-driven power structure. But can the superpowers really make a difference in No Man's Land? 
So here's a real quick uh, story. Like For me, this is a real gem. I love this issue. Uh, Superman finally comes into No Man's Land. The Man of Steel decides that the people of Gotham need his help, and he's not going to let Batman stop him. In fact, there's a really good confrontation between the two. And Batman gives Superman 24 hours. Because Batman knows he can't stop Superman, you know. He <laughs> the Kryptonite ring's probably buried under a pile of rubble or something, right? So, uh, with, with help from Gotham Power Plant's former chief engineer, Superman gets uh, the electricity up and running in Gotham City. And Superman thinks that this is a victory, and then is stunned when it all spirals out of control and goes wrong. The gang start to fight for control of the power plant because whoever controls the electricity controls Gotham. And while Superman's out there battling Mr. Freeze and his gang, the people of Gotham flock to the power plant and begin to pay tribute to the chief engineer, regardless of how many times he tries to decline the tribute. It's like the people are programmed for this. After Superman gets involved and realizes he can't change these people, he finally realizes that Gotham's gone too far and they aren't ready to be saved. And he, he basically leaves and leaves it with the Batman. So what would you think of this one? I'm still trying to work through it. Really? So I, I liked it. I think it was absolutely necessary as an issue, as a story, to show readers why in these 100 issues of No Man's Land there aren't other heroes showing up outside True. of Batman's True. family. So I think that it's pretty important. But I don't understand why Superman gives up. I think that there was still, like, it, it's not a lost cause. I still think that there were other things that he could have potentially done. He's just focused on the people that seem to, I guess, be in the barter system and just going for whatever they can do to survive. But he could I, very well do other things to help out the city, so I don't know why. That's just, I, I don't understand how... Batman gives him 24 hours, and then he's like, you were right. And then Batman said, you know, it took me a long time to realize it as well. Like, Batman's basically saying that he knows Gotham City is a lost cause, too. Well, no, Batman's saying it's different. Like, Superman only knows how to save people. What the story's saying is that Superman only knows how to save people one way. Okay. Whatever he does across the world is what Superman knows how to do. He doesn't know how to do it differently. And Batman's basically saying, uh, and again, this is just my interpretation, but Batman's basically <laughs> saying... Your system doesn't work, Superman, and my old system doesn't work either. The, the, the rules are all new here, and Batman understands that this is a slow process. This is not an overnight fix. This is not a Band-Aid. This is going to take getting your hands in there, getting dirty, and fighting for every square inch of ground. And he knows Superman's not going to stay. I mean, even Gordon says Superman's smart. He's not going to hang around for this. And I, I think that's what they're trying to say. Now, could you, as you said, get in there from a real-world perspective and go, oh, yeah, Superman could still bring food in. He could still arrest criminals. There's things su certainly Superman could do. But I think this story weaves enough of a good story to show why Superman gives up. It's like Because it's not, it's not just about the barter system. It's about the tribute. I mean, everyone there in town wants to basically elevate the chief engineer to a new gang lord. And he doesn't want that, but that's what they're doing, and he can't, he can't even stop it. I mean, these people are bringing him tribute, and he's like, no, no, please, we're fine, and she leaves it on the table anyway. He can't stop them from paying tribute. It's the people are brainwashed, and so that's why Superman gives up. And again, you're right, it's an in-story reason, but it's, yeah. uh, I, I think it's a very effective, though. I did, you know, and he, I wish you could have seen also the good that he had done just with restoring power and also helping that guy get back on his feet. Yeah. I mean, he instilled so much hope into him who was on the bad side and then became this leader and helped people out and fulfilled maybe a position that he never dreamed of fulfilling. Yeah, that's true. So, 
right. So do you think, would you say, <laughs> I'm going against your purpose, but would you say that Batman and Superman help people in different ways as heroes? Um, in No Man's Land or normally? Normally. Yeah. Bat- Batman doesn't so much help people as he stops people. Batman okay. stops crime. Batman stops bad things from happening. Now, that does help people, obviously. But that Batman's job is to stop bad things from happening because he scares the crap out of people. You know, the whole, you know, fear, cowardly lot, that whole thing. Um, so I would say Batman it doesn't necessarily actively help people. He stops bad things from happening. He doesn't want one more crime alley to happen to okay. a little boy. Whereas Superman is actively out there trying to make everyone's life better. You know, he's going to save a kitten from a tree. He's going to, you know, bring rainwater to a to a wildfire. He's going to do, you know, whatever it takes uh, to, to to make everyone's day better. Okay, thank you. <laughs> no problem. Now, I do want to say one thing about this issue. The sure. art is freaking gorgeous. I love oh, sure. this. John Bognadov has been drawn. You know, has, is, is an old hand at Superman. He drove the bat- Superman. Um, he drew the Superman Man of Steel series for years, but and sorry, Michael Bailey, you're probably going to get mad at me, but I don't think Bognado's <laughs> Superman art has ever looked this good. And mm. I don't know whether it's Eduardo Barreto inking him that does it. I don't know if it's, you know, it's been eight years or so since he started drawing Superman. He's just gotten that polished. I don't know which it is, but I love this Bognado's Superman art. It's just freaking gorgeous. I did wonder how you managed to get a superhero, a Superman issue, and Michael Bailey did not. Um, it, well, it all comes down to knowing uh, closely uh, the person who plotted it all out. So, <laughs> just saying, sometimes it pays to have friends. Oh boy! So, and uh, yeah, I'll stop there. I was going to go really bad. Anyway, um, so <laughs> how would you rate this issue? Oh, I guess I have to do it because I said you did it last time. Okay. Uh, oh, okay. Or you can. I don't. I'm going to give it an eight because I are. I'll give it an 8.5, actually. I love this one. I really do. And maybe it's not worthy of the 8.5. Maybe I'm just biased because I like Superman so much, but I love this one. So I'm going to 8.5. I'm going to give it an 8, I think. Okay. A little bit lower than you for the first time. That's fine. That's perfectly fine. So I know you hate good things. So, All right. Uh, Up next, Detective Comics number 733, Shades of Grey, written by Bob Gale. Returning Bob Gale, he wrote the very first uh, couple stories in No Man's Land. Also wrote, Back to the Future! Uh, penciled by Phil Winslade and Sal Bushima, in an attempt to lure out Batman, GCPD encountered Batgirl instead. Gordon gave her a message to relay to her boss. Batman was not welcome in Blue Boy territory. When the uh, post-No Man's Land dated food begins showing up, Penguin realizes that he has competition. Batman rescues an infant from two women quarreling over the guardianship of it. Batgirl gave uh, gave him Gordon's message. Alfred told him a story about his father, and Batman took the child back to the two women and made them promise to take care of both of it. Or made them both promise to take care of the baby. So, uh, lots happened in this issue. Oh my gosh. I mean, Bob Gale packs this story, uh, packs this tale with lots of story, lots of stuff going on. Uh, the summary covers all the key points, but the real heart and soul of this issue is Batman's dilemma about what to do with the baby. And mm-hmm. the similar, similar moral dilemma that Bruce's father faces in the story. Because Alfred relates this tale of Thomas Wayne, you know, the doctor. He's in an effort to save this really sick child. He has no choice but to break into a pharmacy in the middle of the night to get the medicine to save this kid. There's a lot more to it. But ultimately what happens is the pharmacist then begins this campaign of blackmail against Thomas Wayne. And Thomas is distraught. It's tearing apart his life. But eventually, Alfred devises this like clever ruse to free Thomas Wayne from the manipulative pharmacist's blackmail. So, what do you think of this one? 
This was interesting because the story of Solomon, this particular story had recently been used either somewhere else or I had heard it uh, when in a sermon. When you say recently, do you mean you've come across it recently or in 1999? I had come across it recently. Okay, gotcha. So when it was happening, I didn't remember that it was a reference to Solomon, but when there were two women with the baby, I was thinking to myself, oh boy, I think Batman's probably going to say something like, I'll split him down the middle oh, wow. <laughs> and see okay. what happens. So, which is what happens because there is that that reference to Solomon. So that was pretty interesting, but I like how it completely failed yeah. uh, in the real world, I guess, or in 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 modern society. It was it was pretty interesting. I think I was more attracted to the storyline in regards to the GCPD and just how it continues to show the strained relationship between Jim and Batman and trying to, you know, lure, well, they get Batgirl, because I couldn't tell if that was Sarah Essen or not playing Possum. Just, I, I think I was more attracted to that potentially. But it worked out in the end. There's not a lot of hope in No Man's Land, but the baby situation worked out pretty well in the end. It's interesting. Um, I actually felt like the GCPD story got in the way. Oh, okay. Um, as, as, as much as you know, I enjoyed it, or for whatever. Um, if nothing else, for like the good girl art of Batgirl. I mean, goodness gracious, they drew her very voluptuous and sexy and everything uh. in this one. But um, it's. Um I feel like really the real story is Batman, the baby and the story of Thomas Wayne and the rest of it, like penguin and the food and all that. Obviously it's building the, whatever the mythology is going here, but I'm like, I, I don't yeah. care. Get out of the way. This story is about Batman, the baby and Thomas Wayne. That's how I felt like it. Cause there's just, it's too much, too much. In I, I, I get that. Yeah. Yeah. Now uh, saying that, you know, of course, you know, I actually, I kind of, you know, I, it sounded like I was criticizing the art. I kind of like the art in this one. And I don't know if I like Sal Bashima's inking more or the penciling. I'm not sure. Like one of these pages, I think I counted 12 or 13 panels. I'm like, wow. I mean, th this artist really worked hard on this issue. So, uh, and I can't. And then other times the art looks a little bit like he's trying to draw Batman from the movies. Uh, like he looks like he's trying to draw, you know, Michael Keaton in the suit a little too much maybe. But I, something about it just appealed to me. I enjoyed it. What do you think of the art in this one? Yeah, I also like, I think it's just very detailed. Very detailed. I was I was just looking through it and I don't even know what page this is on my comicsology. Oh, it's the meeting page where he has the baby and Batgirl is there. And just how, you know, the, the billboard behind and the derelict buildings in the background, just really well done, I'd say. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> and Alfred changing a baby's diaper is kind of funny. Um, yeah. Now, going back to the GCPD, there is an important point in here. Uh, Jim is pissed and he's talking to Sarah and he's yeah. mad because he just met Batgirl. You know, Jim yeah. just met Batgirl. And he says, the nerve, a new Batgirl. Talk about disrespect. It's as if he's spitting on me. So that means Jim knows that Babs was Batgirl by this point, right? Do you think that's what that means? It's got to be. It's got to be. Now, I remember, and you're going to have to help me because I don't remember when this happened. There is a story with Jim Gordon on a subway and I don't know if this happened before No Man's Land, after No Man's Land, during No Man's Land. It may have even been a flashback. I just remember, I'm pretty sure it was Batman Chronicles. And Jim's on a subway. Some sort of crime situation happens. Is it Huntress on the subway? Huntress shows up and kicks yeah. all the ass. Yeah. And it's at that moment Jim goes, of course my daughter was Batgirl. It's like that's when he realized it. And I can't remember if this is before this, after this, during, flashback, what. But it all ties together. Um, sure. I, do you think he doesn't? Do you think that he's thinking about something else? 
Well, I just wondered if potentially it means, you know, he's recruiting more people and they're also wearing his symbol. Hmm. Okay. Because Nightwing and Robin aren't there. And I wonder, I, I feel like he would have begrudgingly allowed them. But because we've got this new back role, I wonder, and recruiting people, maybe it's, uh, it's rough on his feathers. It could be. I mean, just the, 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 the phrase, he, it's as if he's spitting on me, just makes yeah. me think it's got to be that. So I don't know. But then um, he doesn't go right to, you would want him to go to Barbara and see how she's holding up. Right. Yeah, good point. Well, this issue's got so much other stuff, they didn't have room, I guess. That, one thing about this is worth noting is you get to see Bruce's face in this one. In all the issues we've covered tonight, oh, yes. Batman hasn't had the cowl off once. In all the issues we've covered tonight, this is the first time. I thought the flashback with Thomas Wayne was interesting. I don't really know if the moral dilemma is comparable and works, but the most important thing to think about that, though, is there is a flashback scene of Thomas playing with Bruce, uh, with Bruce, little Bruce sitting on his knee, and, you know, as like a toddler almost, maybe a little older than a toddler, and the father is introducing him to a clown toy. That oh, is gosh. creepy as hell, and it's dressed exactly like the Joker. <laughs> it does, yeah, look like the Joker. No wonder Bruce is traumatized and hates the Joker. It all comes from yeah. this. It's true. And I bet Bob Kane knew this story was going to be published in 1999, and that's how it all fits. Oh, boy. All right, so for rating on this one, I said a lot of nice things about it. You did. But I'm not going to rate it that high. Oh, what are you going to do? Um, I hate to say 6.5. That's pretty brutal. Wow. But That's the lowest of all we've done. I'll give it a seven then. I'll give it the same I gave that other other story we covered that I was like, it's fine, you know, it didn't offend me in any way, it just didn't interest me. So um, <laughs> the Batman Chronicles was that what it was? I can't remember. There was one of them up earlier. I had to, uh, there's so many we've covered tonight, like 500 stories. Oh, the the Alfred one, the Alfred uh, oh, telling Alfred. story. So I think I gave that one a seven. So I'm going to give this one the same score, a seven. It's like mm. I, there's certain things I really I like the art I loved about it. Certain things, but just in general, it was kind of like eh, okay. What about you? Uh, you can give it a nine. I don't care. I mean, it's, oh no, it's not going to be that high. I'll give it an eight. Okay. Out of ten. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. All right, folks. We are moving into the end here. The last major story of the uh, saga tonight, and I would say this is this is really the 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 big one, really, because if you look at it, the the bread and circuses was important mythology building. I would say mosaic, the one where Babs finds out, is the other big one, and I'd say claim jumping is the other big one. We're back into mythology here. No more filler. And I just wanted to mention that if you're in the big, the thick books, that we're in the second book with this one. That's true. We have moved into the second book. That's exactly right. Good point. So, and if you're in hour seven of this episode, um, oh my gosh, <laughs> I told people online on Twitter that your contract only allows for one hour. Yeah, we kind of screwed that uh, three hours ago. <laughs> so, all right, so. Uh, claim jumping arc written by I can't even imagine how long the 21 issue episode is going to go but writer Greg Rucka art by Mike Diodato Jr. and Wayne Foucher starts off in Legends of the Dark Knight number 119 Gotham City is an official no man's land divided into territories controlled by various factions Two-Face decides it's time to change those territories Shadow of the Bat number 87 various powers make claim for Gotham City territory James Gordon faces dissent in the ranks after losing several good people while Batman has a disastrous encounter with the mysterious Echo. So here we go. Uh, so when No Man's Land started, 
it was three months had passed since No Man's Land began. That's the comic book jumped straight into three months, you know, in, into it. Now it's been a little over four months since Gotham was declared a No Man's Land. So since we started with the, the No Man's Land number one giant size issue, whatever it was, uh, about a month and a half have passed because we do get a timestamp on this one. So in this arc, everyone's double dealing. You know, the map of Gotham really changes in this story. And we also get an interesting uh, radio conversation, since this is a Babs podcast. We get a radio conversation between the mysterious new Batgirl and mm-hmm. Barbara Gordon. Babs, uh, Babs says she knows who Batgirl's new real identity is, and she's pissed. She does not want to talk to her on the radio. And then later on, she refuses to let Batman lecture her about professionalism because of who he re- recruited for Batgirl. So, or he didn't actually recruit her, but who he's letting be Batgirl. So at that point, we know everyone knows who Batgirl is, except for us, the reader. Ah, it's driving us crazy. Will we ever find out? Ooh. Yes, in the next story, we will. Which we're not covering tonight. Sorry, folks. So getting into the story proper. In order to distract Batman, Two-Face leaks some fake news. Now, this gets back to Oracle, who does her job and shares the unfortunately bogus intel with the Dark Knight. However, she is keen enough to realize that this is probably a trap. So this leaves Batman in the hands of a Russian psychic named Echo. And we revisit the death of Batman's parents. Wow, that never happens. And uh, But really, this part is just to take Batman off the table for a while. And it also gives Mike Diodato a chance to draw a, a hot girl in weird, brokeback positions. Oh, uh, then we get, well, it's true. Look at those pages. Come on. Then we get into the claim jumping section. Uh, in an effort to double his territory, Penguin makes a deal with Two-Face. Then, Two-Face double-crosses Penguin by helping out Gordon and the Blue Boys. And the Blue Boys annex half of Penguin's land. And, unfortunately, Sarah Essen, Gordon's wife, actually gets shot in this segment. Oof, I didn't realize that the first time I read through. And, uh, and here's the big one. So Batgirl is protecting Batman's territory, right, against Penguin's invading forces. And she's doing a pretty good job in beating him back. Then comes the shocker. Two-Face and 200 of his goons invade Batman's territory. Batgirl, standing on a rooftop, sees the overwhelming forces and simply walks away without even challenging him. Six people then are murdered in Batman's territory, and the land is now totally controlled by Two-Face. And that is the huge cliffhanger. Batgirl has walked away. She didn't even try and fight off Two-Face and the goons, uh, the overwhelming forces, and now people are dead and uh, that w- w- were under Batman's protection. So that is claim jumping. Oof, okay. Um, what did you think of this one? I, I think that it's my favorite of this section. Well, let me think about it. Hold on now. Maybe still Mosaic would be up there, but I I think it's a really strong story. I think you get into, it's not only just action here, but a lot of sort of politics and uh, some spying and, you know, backstabbing as well. So I think it's just, yes, absolutely. But it's interesting how you keep phrasing this last section with what happened. Do you think that (laughs) this reflects poorly on Batgirl? Should she have gone in there with her versus this army and and, and attempted to keep the land? No, I I think... This is where I, I mentioned. Uh, I'm trying to figure out what to say and what I shouldn't say because this story leads directly into the next story, um, not the one we're covering tonight. But uh, there's, it, it picks up immediately afterwards. The next one you're going to be covering next episode. So I don't really want to steal that thunder, but I will say I feel like uh, the the writers painted Batgirl in an unwinnable situation, and then had her respond in a way I don't think she would have actually done. 
I think the writers needed a certain outcome here where Batgirl did something that could be categorized as either cowardly or giving up. And she made that choice, and I don't think she actually would have made that choice knowing the person, but I think for the sake of the story, they needed to happen that way, so she did something that I don't think she would have normally done. Okay. So, And I made it such a big deal about it because of the repercussions in the next story where she has to face the repercussions of seeing invading 200 people and not even lifting a finger to try and stop them. Yeah. So. And, I mean, she was warned by Batman and, and told to... You know, in other circumstances, that she would not be worthy of the cow if she didn't do her job, and there she just walks away. Right, yeah. I mean, she, I think she would have been down there fighting her way out, actually, and, and getting her butt kicked over by two, overwhelmed by 200 people. I think that's what really would have happened. But again, for the sake of the way the story needs to go, she turned around and walked away. So, And even says, you know, what, what else can I do? Yeah. Yeah. I really like how Batman's only out of the picture for a few hours, and the whole map changes. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how do you feel about this Echo character? Other than all the uh, Diodato broke back hot shit drawings. <laughs> That's what I'm, I'm trying to find them. I actually really liked Diodato's art in this mm-hmm. story. But, well, I guess, you know, Sarah Essen maybe had, when she gets shot, but maybe someone looks like that when they get shot. I was trying to figure her out in particular, which is how she's set up, because you, you're not really given much information about her at all. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she's just like a Delane character. She's just her whole entire job is to hold Batman there, so she doesn't <laughs> prove too much of a, a a main character, and she's enough of an enigma to make you want to care about her. But she also doesn't overshadow more of the important parts. Mm-hmm. So she's she's fine. Has she appeared anywhere else? Or I have no idea. I was going to okay. ask you. <laughs> she, you feel like she has. In yeah. the story, but I suspect she probably, and, and I could have done the research. I didn't look it up. I, I, do, I really don't know. She's an interesting character, but there's really not much there. It's like, oh, you're a Russian psychic. You're the only one who survived. You know, ooh, you're called a Turing. You know, that's cool. And then it's over. You know, it, it, like yeah. you said, it's really a stalling action just to get Batman out of the way for a few hours. And yes, Diodato definitely draws her with a broke back. If you look at the pages, she's, there's all kinds of like unnatural poses for her to be sexing up. And the funny thing is, I really like Diodato's artwork too. Whenever he's not in, in this storyline, when he's not drawing a woman, when he's drawing guys, they look great. Two Face looks amazing in this thing. He looks awesome. He's a boss. It's just when he draws the women, he goes too far. You know, he did a run on Wonder Woman, and love it or hate it, I mean, it's it's a great storyline, and I love his art, and he's famous for drawing sexy women, but they're very unnatural poses. You just got to go with it and go, well, it's the 90s, you know, kind of thing. So, two questions. One, there is, is there's a, in the opening, there is a scene where Sarah's in bed, and she's got her, ta- her light on, on the nightstand. And Jim Gordon's in his office, and he's got his desk lamp on. Are those colorist errors, or has the electricity been returned to, to No Man's Land? Oh, that's interesting. Let me scan back to that. Let I think it's the first couple pages of the first yeah. issue. It's actually a neat page, because like, uh, Gordon is trying to figure out what he's going to do at his desk, and he's sitting there, and Batman, it's, like, it's a split panel. Half of it's Batman, half of it's Gordon. They're both trying to figure out what to do. And uh, Gordon's got his desk lamp on. At least in the, at least in my trade. I, yeah, no, I also have that. Do you okay. think potentially they're in the zone where the dam was fixed? I, I, I don't know. It could be something along those lines. I mean, it's definitely not. I don't think they're running on batteries because I don't think Sarah would have kept her nightlight on. I mean, her, yeah. her, her the, t- the light on her end on her nightstand on. Right. Um, Jim might have turned on a lamp in his office, I suppose. But it 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 seems like a wasteful use of electricity. So it almost seems like maybe that power plant's still running. I would think. 
Yeah. Or do you think the police department has maybe generator? Well, I guess four months, though. Yeah, they'd, they'd be out That'd of be gas help. by now. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. So we can now reveal, I think is fair, what happened in the first story, Bread and Circuses, who Gordon made the deal with? Right. Okay. So Bread and Circuses, we said Gordon made a deal. He sold his soul, if you will, to somebody. It was Two-Face. They never showed us it was Two-Face, but the mirror was the key. When you saw Jim in the split mirror, you could tell it was Two-Face. Here, Two-Face makes a deal with Penguin, absolutely intending to betray Penguin. And really, he's honoring a deal with Gordon. So my question for you is, Two-Face has made two deals with Gordon now. <laughs> why? Why did he make? Why did Two Face approach Gordon? Why, out of any one other gang? Yeah. So why? Why does Two Face come to Gordon? I think he does it for two reasons. Okay. One of them, I think, is because of their shared history. Mm-hmm. And so I think in those moments, Harvey Dent is more the one that is driving that relationship and trying to get out whatever he's going to get out. And then I also think that. Renee Montoya is a driving force behind oh, it, this, quite this, honestly. This love affair. Interesting. I think so. I think, obviously, she's not the one who started it, so he's the one who approached Gordon. But Gordon, I think, knows absolutely what he's doing, sending Renee Montoya to be the, the middle person. And so I think because she is the middle person, he is more easily swayed, uh, not really swayed, but persuaded to help out the GCPD. But I think off, I think it very much is a Harvey Dent, you know, pushing that persona a little bit more. But he gets a lot out of it as well. So it's one of those things where he's doing good, but for reasons that are going to very much benefit him. I think you're right. I think, I think that's my answer as well. Harvey Dent's driving the deal. I think, you know, he's looking for the closest he can find to justice. You know, that's the Harvey Dent side is he wants justice. And of everyone in no man's land, Gordon's the one who's going to bring it. And whether it's the shared history or just his respect for the law, I think that's absolutely what's driving that. So, yeah. It's funny. I didn't even know about Montoya and Two-Face having, you know, like that that attraction there from Two-Face towards her. I had no idea. Because it it, it makes sense once you say it. And it's really creepy. I mean, poor Sarah. You know, Gordon's like – he, he's with his wife, and he basically dismisses his wife or, 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 or keeps her out of a private conversation with Renee. And then she, his wife's just sitting there going, what the hell is going on? And it happens twice, you know, yeah. where he's clearly keeping secrets from his wife, and you just know that, like, that can't be good. Not just yeah. that, you know, not that there's a, a romantic entanglement between the two, but just like, oh, if Jim's keeping secrets from, from Sarah, that's not – clearly there's some dirty dealing going on. Right, yeah. So this is a tragic tale. Um, not for the penguin. Who cares that he lost half his territory? But Batman loses a huge chunk of his territory to Two Face, and the people yeah. were murdered, and mm-hmm. those people were under Batman's protection. And just oof, wow. I guess he's lucky. I guess he's lucky. It was only six people. Yeah, it could have unfortunately been worse. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that this wasn't much of a Batman story. It was very much, you know, Penguin, Two Face, and the the Blue Boys. I think they tried to make it a Batman story with with the stuff with Echo and him reliving his parents' death and all that. But, like, honestly, those pages, I just breeze through them. It's like, okay, yeah, death of his parents, I get it. Yep, yeah, all my parents are dead. Boy, because, I mean, like, the ending, when, when you see these six people are all shot full of arrows and dead, and he's got the Batman tag has been scratched out with the Two-Face tag, and it says, Tales You Lose. That's just, that's, that's not only Harvey taking the land, that's Harvey flipping Batman the bird. Really, is yeah. what he's doing there. It's oh, horrible. So, well, I had one question for you. Uh oh, I don't do those anymore. 
Well, that's okay. okay. You said, perhaps off air, that when you were reading this, you didn't know who Batgirl was. Uh, well, I didn't. I, obviously, I know it now. But yes, at the time, right. I did not at the know time, who Batgirl yeah. was. Yes. Do you think that the way Oracle speaks to her, or in this case doesn't speak to her, may or may not be a clue? Oh, yeah. Sure, sure. If, if well, I don't know. Interesting. I I know Oracle and that person have that relationship later on. I don't know if they ever had that relationship before now. I mean, without hopefully showing your hand too much, has in your rundown of all these issues you've done so far, has Oracle had dealings with that person? Yes. Okay. All right. And were they And it's been like this. They, okay, yeah. Because because this character is always painted to be in a negative light. You know, yeah. in the Bat Universe, which again I think is unfair. I think it's just done for story reasons to have an antagonist, you know, that's hanging around the Bat family. I think so. Yeah, that's my answer. Okay, rating. It's either going to be a really, really high eight or a nine. Um, Mosaic still is the best one in the book, I think. Yeah. But um, especially since we're doing, I mean, is it truly the best one in the book? I don't know if Mosaic is, but from a Batgirl perspective, it is absolutely. So I, I'll give this a nine. I mean, it's really the, the weakest parts. The Batman stuff with um, <laughs> sure with Echo. With uh, Echo and, again, yeah. and Echo. I mean, Echo even has the time to put on a ridiculous superhero kind of costume too, which is just. <laughs> but so um, yeah, it's, it's a nine. Yeah, I agree with you. I'd give it a nine. Yeah, it's good stuff. Absolutely. Now we got one more story to do. It's almost like a palate cleanser, really, because it's yeah, fun. Sure. It's a, yeah. It's a, it's a way to end on a high note. Let's put it that way. But remember, as you're going through this, if you really are going to be selective and not read the whole story, read Bread and Circuses, Mosaic, and Claim Jumping. That's what you really need to do. So, all right, let's get into this last one, folks. Young Justice, woohoo! No Man's Land Special Number One, Road Trip. Writers Chuck Dixon and Scott Beatty, artists by Andy Kuhn and Chris Ivy. And here's the recap. Superboy and Impulse decide that the perfect way to cheer up their depressed buddy Robin is to go into Gotham and fix things up. It's a mistake they quickly learn to regret when they find themselves needing help in fending off a bizarre plant woman called Farak and the Cobra (laughs) Strike Force that's closing in. This is super fun. This is great. (laughs) Yeah. It's a very fun distraction amongst the dark, dark, darkity, dark, dark of No Man's Land. <laughs> um, uh. now, now, stepping away from this story, Young Justice, the, com- the monthly comic, is on issue number 10 at this point. So Peter David writes that book, and it's really just it's really getting rolling at this point. So this special, uh, even though it's not written by Peter David, I do feel like it still has the spirit of that series. I feel like they captured the fun of that pretty well. Superboy and Impulse are freaking hilarious in this comic. I mean, they just crack me up. They're like kid versions of uh, Blue Beetle and Booster Gold from Justice League International, though I know you've never heard of that book. Um, and, blah, and it, blah, blah podcast? Yeah, the blah, blah, blah podcast. Exactly right. Now, it takes Robin, Impulse, Superboy, the Whiz Wagon, which I love that, that thing, <laughs> and um, teaming up with the Lagoon Boy and his friends to stop the forces of Cobra, thus saving Gotham. Uh, and unfortunately, Robin's still going to have to face a very pissed off Batman who they come across in this issue. And uh, Robin, because, you know, Robin broke the rules coming back into Gotham, so Batman's pissed. And apparently, the funny part, the joke at the end is that Impulse thinks that Batman is Robin's dad, which, I, interestingly enough, uh, a decade later wouldn't be wrong. So, Sure. <laughs> so what did you think of this? This is a very different one. I, I, have you ever read any Young Justice comics? I've read the whole run, actually. Oh, really? 
You, li- yeah. you like something good. That's unusual. Okay. What would you think? Oh, my gosh. Terrible person. I like – no, I liked this. It was – you call it a palate cleanser. I called it like a bit of a jarring step from what I was reading to get to this. But it was a lot of fun. I like how a lot of it is just happenstance. Mm-hmm. Like these things are just accidentally happening. And, um, you know, one thing leads to another and Cobra's there. And then you've got uh, the Poison Ivy knockoff. And and the the fun interactions between the Teen Titans, obviously, and and how frightened Robin is to be caught by Batman, right. which of course happens. But yeah, it just it had the Young Justice tone, which was great, and it answers I think some questions of just why Robin isn't in No Man's Land, but also raises some questions as well. And yeah, it's a nice little fun companion piece to a dark storyline. Yeah. Yeah, I think you summed it up. Yeah, it's it's super fun. It, it's a uh, it's a quirky way to look at the No Man's Land saga. Just through, it's like like looking at No Man's Land from a different lens is really what it is. So it's I, I dug the hell out of it. Now I love this era of of Young Justice though. I mean, I was completely all in. It was like one of my favorite books in the stands because it was so much fun. And I love the teen characters anyway. Robin's always been one of my favorites. Tim Drake's just phenomenal. And seeing him with you know Superboy and Impulse, which are just complete. Idiots compared to, to compared to Tim Drake. Um, uh, yeah, it's a win. It was definitely a win for me. I like that one scene where the girls are. I mm-hmm. think they're working out, aren't they? And then they say something like, "I wonder what the boys are up to." And then they decide that they're probably not up to anything really much. Okay. And then, of course, you know they actually are getting into all sorts of shenanigans. That's right. always fun. I love the part when they're leaving town because they've been told to, and Lagoon, Lagoon Boy drops the knowledge on them at that point about um, the fact that the forces of Cobra were, you know, attacking or were coming in underwater, and the, the whiz wagon literally stops in midair with a screeching sound, like, <laughs> like what? We got to go back and deal with this. And yeah. the Cobra scene doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, why are they coming to No Man's Land? I don't, you know, I didn't really get that other than it works for the story, but I don't, at this point you don't care. It's just fun. I, I wondered scene, if it was, oh, you go ahead. Well, I found the scene with the girls. Uh, yes, Wonder Girl's working out, but Arrowette is reading a magazine called Super Hunks, and okay. Secret's reading over her shoulder going, oh my. <laughs> yeah, which makes sense because at the beginning of the issue, wasn't Superboy looking through some sort of scandalous magazine? Yes, he was looking through a girly magazine. He had a, yeah. he had a poster, a pinup poster of a robot, that's like a sexy yeah. pinup robot girl. Sure. And he's like, oh yeah, that really works, huh? <laughs> well, that's the future, isn't it? Those Those sex robots? Uh, well, I mean, I'm not saying, I don't want to <laughs> confirm or deny whether I own one already, but let's oh, just keep moving yeah. on. So you were going to say? Okay. Yeah, well, I just wondered, what do you think would have happened if Cobra had made it to Gotham? They would have, I don't know if Cobra <laughs> could operate it in Gotham. I think, now that they've got the whole cult mentality down pretty well, but, uh, well, actually, maybe they would have done well with that. Hmm. Hmm. I imagine the reason why they went is because they thought it was ripe for takeover, that they could have just been in control of the whole thing, which I guess they weren't aware of all the gangs that were running around. Well, they, um, yeah, I mean, I was going to say they wouldn't stand a chance, but yeah, the cult mentality might have actually worked there. So, interesting. So, rating. Um, Super fun, also super disposable. Uh, An eight. Or seven and a half to eight, seven point seven five, seven point seven five. It's fun. I really <laughs> liked it, but it's complete fluff. Yeah, I think I would give it an eight as well. I thought it was a little bit odd that Batman doesn't welcome Robin's help, which I guess we'll get into. He did tell Nightwing and 
and Robin to stay out. But if you remember in the first part, he was, and he's reminded by Alfred that he's trying to do things differently than he did with Nightfall, so not be on his own, which is why he's been working with Batgirl. So I just wonder why he's so angry. But anyways, uh, yeah, I'd give it an 8 out of 10. Okay. Well, as far as the whole working alone, and I, again, stealing thunder from Donovan because I just like to make his soul hurt. Um, oh, yeah. There's a fantastic moment at the end of Mark of Kane where Batman makes that decision where it's time to call in everybody. And I just love that moment. I just love it. So. <laughs> Because again, seeing Nightwing, uh, Nightwing and Robin together, Tim Drake, they are just pure magic. Those two together, it's a big brother and a little brother. Is what it is. Yeah, and absolutely. And Nightwing even gets a little more playful than he always is. Because like, it's his little brother. They're having fun. You know, it's yep. oh, it's so good to have them all together. Mm, all right. So, um, I guess that's it, right? Yeah. So now I just have a couple questions for you to to wrap up. Right, well, I've got a suggestion for you, by the way. We've talked a lot about this guy, uh, some I don't know, some charlatan who was on last episode, Michael Bailey. And, oh sure. Um, I was looking at stuff that you've got coming up and stuff that I'm not entirely. Sure. I don't remember. I can't remember everything that Babs is in, but I was trying to figure out, you know, because I always love to come on your show, and I'm always looking for a chance to get on here, and I like to, you know, help Mike get on the show, too. So, just a couple of things to note. Uh, a couple episodes that I know Mike uh, would really love to be part of, because he loves these stories. Uh, I would recommend you get Michael Bailey on for War Games. Um, I know he really likes that one. And then in the New 52, I can't remember... If, because, you know, if she's Batgirl at that point, I can't remember if she's in these two or not, but there's two stories I know he loves from the New 52. Uh, one is called The Culling, and the other is called Superman Hell on Earth. Either one of those would be great to have Michael on your show for. Well, thank you. I'll be sure to contact him about that. Yeah, invite him. Absolutely. He would really appreciate it, and I know he'll thank me for uh, recommending him for those episodes. How come you're recommending him and you're not trying to volunteer yourself? Well, because I know you're going to have me on. I just I, I know how it works with you and I. We have a, a connection, you know, a, uh-huh. that goes beyond just words. I would say, you know, that, and also I'm going to twist your arm really hard at Baltimore and make you be on make, and you let me be on another episode. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to say, oh yeah, I, <laughs> I had a question for you at the beginning. I completely forgot. Oh, what, what was that question? Well, it was about the Blah 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 podcast. Yes, that would be Justice League International Blah Ha Ha podcast. A podcast dedicated to celebrating the JLI era with, uh, written by uh, Keith Giffen and J.M.D. Mateus. It's a great show, and it's a great comic that you refuse to read, but thanks for anyway. Well, I just wondered, you know, if you'll ever forgive me. No. <laughs> oh, did I need to did- upon that? I thought it was pretty um, self-explanatory. Gosh. I mentioned it last episode. How oh, I know. I, I heard. Oh, okay. Yeah. And you didn't feel bad at all? N- not even a bit, no. you. Uh, <laughs> I, I invited you to be on the show. And, oh. you know, I've been on your show a number of times. You've been on yes. Fire and Water at least once, I want to say. We did uh, Thrill Killer. And uh-huh. then, you know, I'm like, hey, you know what? I got my own show going here. It's a great opportunity. I've got a different guest every episode. And you just said, nah. I'm like, what? Really? Nah, I, I, apparently you can only read comics that have Barbara Gordon in it, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> That's not what it was. But I learned from Michael Bailey that you just say yes, no matter what. Mm-hmm. But, but you didn't say yes. You said no to me. Well, I mean, do you want to re-offer and, and I can say yes? I've already asked twice, so I'm not used to it. <gasps> That's yeah. not true, yeah, I don't so think. I, I uh, You know, still, you know, we have a certain <laughs> relationship, and... um. I guess you turning down my advances, I'm not used oh to. Let's just put it that way. Gosh. So. Okay. I contacted Michael Bailey, and he said, maybe war games, but otherwise lies all lies. 
I wondered if you were going to follow the instructions uh, that you were given. I did. I did. So. I was texting as you were writing or talking, I mean. So, okay, well, I, I tried. I tried. It's no Joker's last laugh in Amazon's attack, but I had to come up with something. Really, anything written by Scott Lobdell in New 52, Mike would be happy to be on. Oh, interesting. Okay. All right. Well, now my actual serious questions, but you can absolutely invite me on the blah, 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 and I'll say yes this time. Don't believe you. Do you think that well, – I guess I already asked this, but I'd like to hear your opinion. Do you think No Man's Land could work without Barbara Gordon? Sadly, yes. I wouldn't enjoy it as much, but uh, her network of information, while useful, you could certainly find other ways. Batman could have people reporting to him. I think it could certainly work without her. Uh, okay. Just just like the first half worked without Robin and Nightwing, you know, it would it's more fulfilling with her in it though. Okay. Oh, well, hold on a minute. Hit the brakes. <laughs> I'm gonna change my answer, and it's not because the information brokers and all that. It's because of Batgirl. So No Man's Land, as long as they're doing the Batgirl piece of it, no, it doesn't work without Barbara. So okay. there you go. I've changed my answer. Now, if awesome. you if you remove the Batgirl piece of the story, yeah, you don't need Babs. Okay. How does No Man's Land as a whole rank for you in terms of a Batman story? How would you compare it to some of the other events? It's it's up there. It is probably what I would consider a second-tier event. Uh, and I shouldn't say event. Second-tier Batman story, meaning as far as popularity goes. Like there's the A-level stories, which for me are Batman Year One, uh, Dark Knight Returns, those kind of stories. Those are those are the, the top. You don't beat that. Uh, and then the second tier right beneath that is going to be No Man's Land and maybe Nightfall if you cherry-pick what you read, because I'm not the world's biggest Nightfall supporter. But um, I would say yeah, it's, it's, it's up there, very, very high. So Okay. But again, year one is such a perfect piece of work. It's so good. And Dark Knight Returns, well, it's got reasons to argue with it. It's still, I think, an amazing piece of work. So I, I, think, uh, I think it's hard to, to displace those guys. But uh, other than that, it's absolutely, absolutely damn fantastic. Final question. Are you Team Grape or Team Raisin? It's an interesting one. I'm a little torn on that, actually, because every day I eat lunch, and I have uh, a turkey sandwich, I have an apple, and I have grapes every day. Sometimes they're green, sometimes they're red, sometimes they're black. Uh, I love me some grapes. However, there's a lot of merit for raisins. And when I was a very young child, that was my one snack I was allowed to have that was like a treat for me because they're tasty and sugary and everything like that. So I think, even though I eat grapes every day, I think my heart belongs with raisins. Team Raisin is glad to have you. Ah, thank you. I'm glad to be aboard, ma'am. <laughs> well, finally, since I'll be doing the rest of the show on my own, would you please tell listeners where they can find and support you? Absolutely. Uh, you can find me at the Firewater Podcast Network. It is a wonderful network of a large collection of shows that Stella's never heard, uh, including the Firewater Podcast about Aquaman and Firestorm. There is a Who's Who podcast. There's a Digest Cast podcast. And these are all uh, ones that I'm part of. There's a Hero Points, which is an, a role-playing game podcast. There's also the Justice League International Blah Ha Ha podcast, or as I sometimes heard it called, Blah 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 podcast. Anyway, <laughs> yes. uh, again, celebrating the JLI. All of those are shows I'm on. There are a ton of other shows I'm not on that are probably even better. So you should definitely stop over there. we got stuff on Treasuries and MASH and Cheers and Bob Dylan and Amazing Comics and uh, in the Invasion crossover. and I mean, stuff about Justice League Unlimited cartoon. Everything you can imagine, we've got under the sun. And I, I'm... I'm completely blessed to be working with an amazing collection of incredibly talented podcasters and super nice people. So uh, 
Water Podcast Network. You can also find me on Twitter as Firestorm Fan or Once Upon a Geek. And Stella apparently uses those handles interchangeably, depending on what she feels like tagging me in that day. <laughs> so, I think I mostly just search Shag and then it pops up. Well, you the know, Once Upon a Geek. I'm sure searching the word Shag on Twitter is a very safe thing to do at work. No, no. <laughs> but I have heard of your podcasting since I am on the Google Drive and I use that to get my promos. Yes, if you're a podcaster and you don't know, yes, we have a, uh, a shared promo, uh, podcast promo drive for basically their geek podcasts. And there's something like, I don't know, 150 different promos to choose from out there right now. So it's great. Go out there, use them on your show, please. And still, I have to say, I'll, I'll take a second to take my mean hat off and be nice for a moment. I sincerely appreciate you having me on the show. No Man's Land is, at least in my book, is one of the most highly praised Batman stories in the era of Oracle. And uh, I think when you started the show, I probably asked immediately to be on these episodes. I'm sure you got <laughs> lots of people who asked. And the fact that you've only got five-ish episodes to cover, uh, the fact that you let me one of the, be one of the guests and do this seven-hour episode, I, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'm, well, I'm thanks. honored. And it was my pleasure, absolutely. And it helps that you said you are going to edit the seven-hour episode. Wait, you're you're breaking up. Is it? I think we have a bad internet connection. There's, you know, bad. Oh, Ooh, it sounds man. almost like AOL in the '90s. Hmm. Oh my goodness! No, it was a lot of fun. I was looking, you know, when I was setting out everything, I had my short list of people, and uh, none, I none of them were available. So, oh so you please, up with me. no, it's fun. I think you know we've come so far from. When you offended me by saying, you know, you never listen to any of my shows, and then you made me go and listen to that Supergirl special, and uh, look at how far we've come. Is that where it started? Okay. I just miss <laughs> the old days where I was allowed to say she's hot every 15 seconds on your show, uh, and now you specifically invite me on episodes where you don't see women too often. Now, I will say, here you go, make you feel better. Batgirl, uh, drawn to that one one where they drew her really curvy and stuff, she's pretty hot there. And uh, In the... The gray, the whatever, the Legends 119? Whichever one it was, yeah. Uh, I think that was the one, yes. The one okay. with the baby. And then you get the, the broke back uh, Echo lady. She was pretty Echo? hot, even though it okay. was ridiculously drawn. So there you go. Uh-huh. Sarah Essen, smoking hot. She absolutely is. So She wasn't that nighty with the lamp on. Oh, I noticed. So. <laughs> well, there you go. You got your fill. See, we, we've come so far, and yet I am still stuck perpetually at 11 years old. I guess so. And horribly offensive in to, to women, and you still invite me on your show. It's amazing. I think people wonder. I think you just like to have me on the show as like an example of what a grown man shouldn't act like with people, especially with women. Maybe that's what the purpose of me being on the show is. Perhaps. Okay. The world may never know. <laughs> Thanks again, Stella. I sincerely Absolutely. My pleasure. Now it's time for some listener emails. Mail time. Here's the mail, it never fails It makes me want to wag my tail When it comes, I want to wail I have an email from Michael Staley. He said, Hey Stella, love the first part of your look at No Man's Land. This story holds a special place in my heart because it was the debut of one of my all-time favorite characters, Cassandra Kane. Really excited for when you get to her. It's funny. The more I read about Batman, especially in this era, the more I realize what a jerk he can be. With his shutting everyone out, not even really talking to Barbara when he comes back, and something still to come in No Man's Land, it's sometimes amazing anyone is still willing to work with him. Keep up the great work. I can't wait to hear your thoughts on the rest of the story. Mike Staley. 
and from Captain DC, who posted on episode 160, which was No Man's Land Part 1. The Donovan and Stella, I mean the Batman and Catwoman non-wedding, was very disappointing. So were the meaningless wedding preludes. I think writers are way too comfortable with not progressing character arcs, taking away character development, and keeping characters wallowing in endless failure slash misery. In Batman number 32, as Bruce is ashamed of almost murdering the Riddler, Selina is there to console and reassure him by agreeing to marry him. Tom King did a great job of showing Bruce open up emotionally and express how much he needed her. Selina rewarded that emotional vulnerability by not abandoning him and understanding her value to him. She's the ride-or-die partner that makes Batman better and stronger. And Catwoman's ego is big enough to always think that Batman would be better off with her than him suffering alone without her. Even if superhero marriages are still basically outlawed by Dan DiDio, hopefully Tom King at least repairs the Bat-Cat relationship. By making Selina a runaway bride is similar to her having to give her daughter up for adoption and having her characterization devolve during the New 52. Since Ed Brubaker's run, writers haven't really allowed her to gain or keep anything positive. Hopefully Joel Jones allows Catwoman to grow. I agree with you there. I'm hoping that because of how... Well, I think Catwoman's characterization has been quite recently. I'm hoping that this doesn't add a stain to her. And I haven't been reading Joel Jones's run, just because I very much cut back on Batman issues and reading. But please let me know if it's good and if maybe the, the first trade or so is worth picking up. Well, thank you for writing in to those people. And remember, you can always post on the website or you can email me at backgirl2oracle <laughs> at gmail.com. Well, when I come back, I'm going to be alone, and I will review Backgirl number 77, a.k.a. Backgirl 25. But first, Zias's Radio Hour featuring Summertime Magic by Childish Gambino.
we're back. So Batgirl 25 was delayed by a couple weeks, and it is an oversized, and it was a little weird because I felt like when I was reading it, I wasn't really finding any ads in it, which is fine, but uh, I just thought, yikes, there aren't any ads in here. This is a little odd. So there are four stories in here, and what I'm going to do is go through, recap the stories, and then I will come back and talk about each individual story as a whole. And there's one that I'm going to save for last, but I will recap it in order. So first up is The Reason. Writer Margaret Scott, penciler Tom Derenick, inker Sean Parsons, and colorist Stephen Downer. Batgirl visits the funeral of Duane, a teacher who protected his students who were visiting Burnside College when the Scarecrow attacked. He survived that attack, but was the unfortunate victim of the Joker when he was shot during his own wedding during Batman number 48. Batgirl comes to the funeral hoping that she will hear something that will help make sense of it all. She wonders how to purge an evil that exists all around, and if you can't, why even bother? The mother of Duane sees her during her eulogy and goes to the balcony of the church to talk to her. The mother is surprisingly uplifting, thankful that she got more time with her son after the, after the scarecrow attack, and thankful for love. The mother encourages Batgirl to have a good cry, find some safe harbor, and go back out there doing what she's doing. Batgirl calls her safe harbor, who happens to be Dick Grayson, and they decide to meet up. This goes right into Hopeless Romantic, writer Margaret Marguerite Bennett, artist Jordi Belair, and colorist Darren Bennett. Picking up right where the previous story left off, Dick and Babs meet up at the Gotham Gaslight Hotel. I know, I know. And use the suite that was supposed to be for Bruce and Selena's honeymoon. <sighs> they discuss how sad it was that it didn't work out, and Babs says that people may not live the rest of their lives side by side, ending together, but that doesn't mean that the time they spent together wasn't meaningful, powerful, or worthwhile. Dick talks about his dream wedding, and Babs talks about just having Sunday mornings. Dick wonders if she sees anyone in particular in those thoughts, and she admits that it's him. They end up falling asleep together with the beach scene on the TV and Hawaiian music playing in the background. To be continued, then we have Value, writer Margaret Scott, penciler Paul Pelletier, inker Norm Rapmund, and color Jordi Belair. One week later, in Burnside, Batgirl is investigating a murderous art thief in a high-class neighborhood. She uses her eidetic memory and Sherlock skills to trace the path of the homeowners, only to find them murdered and their art stolen. The thief-slash-murderer is none other than grotesque. Yes, that grotesque. He tries to zoom away on his bike, but Batgirl wraps a cable around him and yanks him off. They tussle, but he somehow gets the upper hand and rides away without noticing a tracer placed on his jacket during the tussle. Batgirl boots up her GPS on her bike and begins her journey back to Gotham to be continued in Batgirl number 26. And finally, March Madness. Writer Paul Dini, penciler Emanuela Lapacino, and inker Ray McCarthy and colorist Jordi Belair almost colored the whole book, which I appreciated. At Menagerie Media, Batgirl fights off a group of men dressed in bad animal costumes. And I mean, they're so bad that they make Velvet Tiger look good. So just think about that. It seems March Harriet crashed a Mr. Warren's party and drove them insane with some Mad Hatter tech. Oddly, Harriet turns the devices off so she can tell her sub story to Batgirl. It seems Harriet and her girlfriend Lily Shaw came to the U.S. a few years back, stealing to make ends meet until they were offered a job to play hostess at a sketchy club. At the club, they discover some technology that allows a good night's sleep to the wearer, but infuses that wearer with hypnotic suggestion. 
Jervis Tetch appears randomly to also grab the tech, but Warren and his goons show up and toss him all out, unfortunately killing Lily in the process. Tetch helps Harriet out, and they end up teaming up, but Harriet needed revenge. During the story, Batgirl suddenly realizes that the men dressed up, or the man, sorry, dressed up as a Cheshire cat has gone missing, and that story time was really a delaying tactic because he is locked up in an airless room. Batgirl saves Warren shortly before cuffing him for his activities, and Harriet seems to be going away as well until she escapes, and Batgirl goes after her down the rabbit hole. The end. Okay, so I'm going to go story by story here, and I'm going to start with The Reason, which was the the funeral there. I like the fact with this story that there are continuity connections with the Batman universe, however tragic it may be. Even though they showed panels of the wedding and Joker killing him, which gives enough background, I am glad that there's an editorial note, but it makes better sense, of course, if you have read leading up to the Batman wedding. And again, though, it is just nice to have some books connect with each other. I also appreciate the fact that it highlights a teacher and his care and concern for his students. It's almost as if it's an analog to all the shootings that unfortunately we have been witness to in the U.S. for the past couple years. Except instead of a shooter, there's the scarecrow, and there's more or less a happy ending for the kids, just not for the residents of the college. I felt like I was reading some Bronze Age Batgirl, however, because we see her questioning what she's doing and what the point of all of it is. I mean, this sounds familiar, cough, cough, crisis on infinite earths. It takes the mother of the teacher, acting like Supergirl in that story, to talk some sense into her and lead her not only towards continuing the fight, but also to the arms of Nightwing. So this story certainly serves a dual purpose because the story leads into the next one, but you know, again, I, I just wonder about this this Batgirl that we are witness to. And we've seen this before. Uh, we've seen it with Barbara Gordon. We've seen it with Steph. I remember, gosh, one of the first storylines with Steph, I think someone fell out of a window and she was unable to save him. So there are going to be those moments where in a hero's journey, they just aren't able to succeed with what they're trying to do. And I just watched... Iron Fist season two on Netflix and Misty Knight says that, you know, you can't save anyone, but all you can do is try. And I think that's certainly what Batgirl should also be considering. And she, I appreciate the depths of her sorrow and the fact that she doesn't throw off the weight of it. It, and she acts as if, you know, this is the first time that this has happened. So the impact is almost as if it's the first time. But I also don't need her to constantly question what she's doing. I think she's at this point of her career that if she's devoted this amount of time to it, either being back or Oracle, that she's got skin in the game and, and she just needs to keep with it or quit entirely. I mean, goodness, we can't be we can't be wishy-washy. So I am glad that that conversation happened with the mother. And I'm just hoping that with this new arc with Margaret Scott, that we have perhaps a more confident Barbara who is not at all regretting what she's doing and hopefully just is more successful on her missions and uh, seems to be better overall than what we had seen with Hope Larson's run and just questioning and trying to find herself constantly. 
I'm going to skip the hopeless romantic. I want to save that for last because I have a lot to say. So I'll go on to value. Now, this is the story that I was most interested in reading, mainly to get a sense of the tone of Scott's writing. If you recall, I read that interview with her and I was concerned just because I felt like, yikes, are we going to get back to the darker New 52 tone with Gail Simone's run? I'm not interested in Grotesque as a character, mainly because of my sour memories, but I am going to try to give the story and her arc an open mind. As I thought, it is darker and gruesome, and now I've read dark stories before, and I've enjoyed them, but I just question what the role of that tone is in a back row book. She can have serious storylines, but do, do I want a younger audience potentially reading a story like this as a jumping on point and thinking that this is Batgirl, what Batgirl is all about? And I would say, no, I wouldn't like that. I was also surprised she was taken down, Batgirl anyways, was taken down in the fight rather easily, but I don't remember Grotesque's fighting prowess in the Simone run, so I'd have to look back at those. At least she was smart throughout the story. She was using her detectiving skills and placing a tracker on him during the fight. I also like how her bike is all teched up as it should be, though it does remind me of that weird Bronze Age story where Robin and Batgirl's bikes go to visit them, if you remember. Shout out to Josh Bertoni for sure. So it was an okay story, but again, I think you can tell right on the outset that it's, it is going to be a little bit macabre and... We'll see. I mean, this was not even, we only saw a little bit of it. So once he goes on his spree, I wonder what that's going to look like. So just a lot more blood, I think, than we're used to seeing in Batgirl. And then we have March Madness. This seemed to be the longest story of the issue in the sense that it felt like it went on for far too long. Now, I like Paul Denny as a writer, but I just didn't think this story was as successful, mainly because it just seemed to take weird turns and have an origin story wrapped up in it and then kind of have Mad Hatter thrown in there, but not really. I mean, how weird is it that a bad guy would just stop to tell a story? Batgirl really should have realized earlier that something was up. I was also expecting Lily Shaw to suddenly appear alive, but that didn't happen. I looked at those panels for quite a while, and it just seemed like Harriet got a fatal wound because she was shot, while Lily just got knocked out. And so I was really confused when I read that she was dead. I did like the fact that Harriet got away at the end, and Batgirl went off to chase her, mainly because... It gave a non-ending and potential for a fun story later because I think it did have a, a lighter tone due to the overall zeniness and not wrapped up in the pedophilia of Mad Hatter. But still, I, I would say that this was the weakest story overall. So then we have Hopeless Romantic. This is it, isn't it? It's the one you are wondering about. The one which several issues of Nightwing and Batgirl have led to. The one clearly meant for me and addressing my hopes and desires. Boy, I wish I could say I was satisfied. The whole story really is a shipper fest and there are a lot of cute moments. And Bennett, no surprise because she is such a huge shipper in general, writes all the interactions well and the words fit the characters. But... What I'm hearing as I read this is that these two may not or will not end up together, but can at least spend a significant amount of time together. And you have to ask yourself, is that ooh, is that enough? You know, for a diehard Dick and Babs fan, is that enough for me? And it really depends, doesn't it, on how those stories are crafted. But I... Oh, I really want them to end up together. I think that there are two characters in the Batman universe that could lay down 
the cape and cowl and actually be together for the end. Ugh. And boy, are we flashing back to Dixon BOP era, right? Birds of Prey with Dick being the optimistic one and Babs being more of the cautious and kind of sourpuss one because he's he's got his wedding planned out and, and I don't know, he just seems really happy and, and chill and she's more like analytical and, and thinking about all these things. It has a nice ending with the two falling asleep in each other's arms, but I don't even know what the whole thing means. I mean, are they together or not? Are they just part-time lovers? What is happening? With all of the stuff going on, I feel like more questions are raised, and I guess I just need to go with it. And maybe sometimes they'll be together in an issue, and sometimes they won't. Sometimes they'll hang out. Sometimes they won't. Who knows? The other thing that really gets me is that they're having a serious conversation in a honeymoon suite and basically in lingerie. I mean, Babs has a cami and sleep shorts that might be silk and Dick is in his boxers. I was so distracted by this because the images are screaming Eros, which is erotic love. But the words on the page are saying philia, which is affectionate love or agape, selfless love. And I really don't know how you can have a serious conversation with someone that you've known biblically love and are clearly attracted to i mean if someone was dressed like this in a romance novel the guy would get all befuddled and the girl would absolutely know what she was doing dressing like that and one thing would lead to another i'm just saying it's a great conversation but the tone of it would change completely completely if it were somewhere else or if they were dressed differently whether they were in civvies or in their superhero clothing I did enjoy it. So don't think I didn't enjoy it. I think there, I just have mixed feelings about it, you know, what it means. And again, yeah, sort of the art and, and the words not really jiving together. I think overall, Backroll 25 was a solid issue with stories that more or less matter for the character and series. So I'm going to give it 8.5 out of 10 bats. And, of course, I have to say that my favorite page is probably page 20 with the Dick and Babs, <laughs> with the Dick and Babs, with Dick and Babs falling asleep together. Even wordless, this would be a beautiful page, and it certainly jumpstarts my shipper heart. I'm taking suggestions for Chris's segment. I think it's easy for me to say what he's going to do but now that he's doing a couple different things like his little um his nightwing corner and he'll be doing batman adventures or batman and archie i think he deserves something better so today's uh until someone tells me to change it and gives me a suggestion is this now over to chris's cornucopia of curiosities Ah, that's like some actual good swag on Batman Day and being undefeated in your fantasy football league. Thank you very much, Stella. Hello, Bat fans. Welcome once again to the Archie Meets Batman 66 slash Batman Adventures review segment. Thank you very much for downloading, and as always, thank you for not fast-forwarding. My name is Chris, and I'm very glad to be with you. So, let's get to the reviews. First up, Archie Meets Batman 66, number 2, cover dated October 2018. Priced at $3.99. Our writers are Jeff Parker and Michael Morrissey. Pencils by Dan Parent, inks by J. Bone, and colors by Kelly Fitzpatrick. The outstanding covers were provided by the following. The main cover was done by Michael and Laura Allred, and there were variant covers by Rick Burchett with Rosario Tita Pena, Matthew Dow Smith, Robert Hack, Wilfredo Torres with Kelly Fitzpatrick, and Michael Walsh. Picking up where we left off, in the Batcave, Batman, Robin, and Batgirl receive Veronica's radio message for help that her father is under a hypnotic spell. 
But, with the bookworm still at large, Batman sends Batgirl and Robin to go undercover at Riverdale High. Back in Riverdale, Pop kicks Archie and the gang out of the chocolate shop, and he starts serving Joker burgers. The Siren and the Riddler recruit Reggie for some underhanded shenanigans. Back in Gotham, Alfred joins Batman looking into a bookworm counterfeiting plot. And back in Riverdale, Barbara Gordon and Dick Grayson become new students at Riverdale High. And there is instant attraction from Archie and Betty. The other villains decide to get control of Riverdale's teens, with Catwoman planning to join the faculty as Miss Kitka, and the Joker plotting to use Jughead in a brainwashing plot. To be continued. As with the previous issue, the artwork is cheery and fun. It's nice to see Dick and Barbara in the then-contemporary clothes infiltrating Riverdale High. We get Cesar Romero's mustache visible on Joker's face. While I'm tempted to ask when and how did Batgirl learn Batman and Robin's identities, I won't. After all, then I'd have to ask how the Bat characters wound up in the Archie universe to start with. You just have to go with it, as with questioning if Barbara can pass for a high school student. I had no problem with the story and the art. I did have a problem with the packaging, though. Aside from the cover gallery and the next issue tease, there were ten pages, yes, ten pages of house ads. I thought that was pretty obscene, and it gives me pause if I, or one may be better off, waiting for the trade paperback when this series is completed. And if that should affect my rating on this. I'll be fair and just review the content, and give Archie Meets Batman 66, number 2, 7.5 out of 10 bats. And buyer beware, if you have concerns about the page count, you have been warned. Next up, Batman Adventures. I'm up to Batman Adventures number 9. Batman Adventures number 9 was cover dated June 1993 and priced at $1.25. Our story, The Little Red Book, was written by Rich Burchett, penciled by Mike Parabic, inked by Rich Burchett, and colored by Rick Taylor. Act 1, Gangster Boogie. Batman chases mob boss Rupert Thorne's thugs, who've retrieved a little red book from a GCPD storage area. Batman eludes gunfire and pummels some goons. Two of Thorne's thugs, with the book, manage to make it to a car, and they try to run over Batman. But Batman manages to somersault over the vehicle and hangs on to the rear. Batman moves and punches through the driver's window, and the car crashes into a light pole on a pier, which sends Batman sprawling. Before the cape detective can recover, one of the goons manages to throw the book into the water. Later, a GCPD officer in scuba gear retrieves the book, but Commissioner Gordon and Batman look over the book. A book with incriminating names, dates, and account numbers. Well, any useful evidence against Thorne. And they find it's illegible. Gordon says it's not fair. And Batman replies he hasn't won yet. Act 2, The Big Boss. Batman makes his way to Thorne's mansion and takes out his goons and sentries one by one. Eight in all. Where he ultimately reaches a room and hears a voice behind him asking what took him so long. Batman turns and sees a robed Rupert Thorne looking down on him from the top of a staircase. Thorne is flanked by half a dozen gunmen. Batman surmises that Thorne let his men destroy the Little Red Book, and Thorne must have another copy. Thorne tells Batman he's correct, but the actual book just left by car, and it's headed someplace safe. Thorne coolly tells Batman goodbye. Act 3, Rupert's Reckoning. Before the gunman can shoot, Batman lassos Thorne's ankle and pulls him over the balcony edge. Batman orders the gunman to throw their weapons down, or he'll let Thorne go. Thorne orders his men to comply. 
Batman then rappels to the balcony, over and through the men, and smashes through a window, escaping more gunfire. Yet more gunfire is even upon Batman as he gives chase in the Batmobile to the goon's car containing the little red book. The goon's car crashes, and Batman retrieves the book. We smash cut to a courtroom, with Thorn on the witness stand looking very angry, and being questioned by Harvey Dent. Bruce arrives, and Gordon whispers that Thorn's paid-off jury might get him off. But it's nice to see Thorn squirm. Bruce looks at his watch, waiting for Harvey to finish, so the two of them can go out to lunch. But he's quickly pushed into the hallway. The end. There was very little dialogue in this issue. This was, essentially, top to bottom, soup to nuts, a well-oiled and well-crafted action story. And even though we don't have a lot of lines, I think the characterizations from our lead principles comes through. An effective Batman that takes out men with stealth. Thorn oozing with a contemptible smugness as a villain that you, as a reader, begs for his comeuppance. The artwork was very good with well depicted fast-paced action, and my favorite panels were when Batman breaks through a window as we see lightning strike in the background. One does hope that Thorne did get convicted, but we didn't see the outcome. We, as the readers, are left a bit hanging, and I'm not sure if I like that as an ending. (laughs) That's my slight quibble, and I'm giving Batman Adventures number 9 a solid 8.5 out of 10 bats. Now, for everyone's favorite segment within a segment. Nightwatch! This is where I look at the current events in the Nightwing title from a shipper perspective. Nightwing Annual number 1 dropped since the last recording, and there were some interesting developments. The story is titled Deadline, and it opens with a bare-chested and unmasked Nightwing bound to a table, and with Batgirl next to him. Ah, but it's not what you might think. Think clean thoughts, old chum. Batgirl is extracting a phantasm controller around Nightwing's heart. The issue takes some regrettable turns, with Nightwing and Vicky Vale having some flirty back-and-forth exchanges. Mind you, Vicky looks quite a bit younger and closer in age to Dick than any previous depictions in my mind. I have to think she's more closer to Bruce Wayne in age. Ah, but we haven't seen the last of Batgirl, as she shows up later to gift Nightwing a huge truck that's essentially a rolling bat cave, complete with vinyl records from the 80s, a glute master, and a new motorcycle. The two embrace. And Dick's thoughts reflect that being with Babs makes every prior flirty exchange shallow in comparison. A step is taken back, though, when we see Nightwing is given Vicky a comlink, and Nightwing is no closer to capturing the villain. I don't know if it's fire or warm at this point. Boo hiss. However, I will give Nightwing Annual number 1 a mild repeat Mild shipper alert. Next, in Nightwing number 48, the story is titled Harm's Way, Part 1. And here, Nightwing goes to the Isle of Harm for an insane motorcycle race. For reasons I'm not exactly clear on, there are monsters and bizarre characters about. The advanced solicit says the new character Silencer appears, but she's barely in the issue, so there is no, repeat, no shipper alert in Nightwing number 48. This concludes this edition of Nightwatch. Uh, not much by way of news. A future issue of Archie Meets Batman 66 wasn't in the advanced solicits, so I might be skipping a review in a forthcoming month. Before I go, I'd like to thank Paul on Twitter, at reading underscore Hicks, for having me on the DC OCD podcast, where we discuss the 90s DC Elseworlds limited series Kingdom Come. I was very flattered to have been asked, and had a great time being on his show. 
You can follow that podcast on Twitter at DCOCDCast. Also check out the Waiting for Doom podcast that covers the Doom Patrol he does with Mike. Lots of fun. I'd like to give a shout-out to Laurel on Twitter at MountainFlower1. Thanks for the kind words and your support. Be sure to check out Laurel on the Feather and Foes podcast that looks at the Birds of Prey title. They're just getting into Gail Simone's run. Laurel joins host Ashford and Mark with her great story recaps and thoughts and insights. And I don't want to forget Stella can also be found on the Required Reading podcast. I'd also like to give a shout-out to the Sutherlands. Be sure to check out Warlord Worlds, Trick or Talk, Xenozoic Xenophiles, Sensational Sleuths, Fantastic Fantasies, and the Convention Correspondence Podcasts. Listeners, you can find me on Twitter at b 2 Batbooks. I'll tweet about my weekend nightstand reads, old Batman comics, and I put out a Saturday morning salute where I tweet a pic of an old TV listing from a Saturday morning of yore, among other things. Hope you like it and give it a try if you're not following me on Twitter already. More so, please give it a follow. The handle again is BTO and Batbooks. BTO as in Batgirl to Oracle, and Batbooks as in Batbooks for Beginners, the other podcast that I can be found on. The Batbooks for Beginners podcast is another podcast I can be found where I co-host with Jerry Green, and that's where we examine and review trade paperbacks of collected material of Batman or related characters. You can also find us talking about independent comics, other titles and movies on The Professor Frenzy Show. Please check it out if you're not doing so already. Please feel free to leave any comments for myself on this segment or for the podcast on the TBU website, and please give us a good review over on iTunes. If you'd like to lend your support to the Batman Universe website that has news, articles, editorials, and their fine family of podcasts, you can make a donation on Patreon or a one-time donation by PayPal by following the links on the Batman Universe website homepage. Thank you very much for your kind support. If you wish to contact me directly, I can be reached by email at bruce.wayne at gothamcity.us. And again, thank you for your support. What perplexing ponderables will be posed by what person and for what purpose in the next issue of Batman Adventures? Can the jolly, jesting Jack and Apes Joker make the jumble, jaggy, jaded Jughead juxtaposed and jocular, making Joker jubilant? Don't fail to listen to the next podcast where the answers to these jurisdictional jumbles will be judiciously justed next time. Same Batstella feed, same Batstella sight. Thanks, Chris. Now on to my anime watch list. For the film, I have Asagao to Kazesan, a.k.a. Morning Glories and Kazesan. 2018 release, 58 minutes. Yui Yamada, a timid girl who enjoys tending to her school's greenery, falls in love with the boyish and athletic Tomoka Kase. The two eventually begin dating, and the story follows the pair as they face various challenges in their relationship. So I would say that this is new anime viewer approved with an open mind because it is a yuri, which means uh, some girl-to-girl love, and it's Japanese with English subtitles. If you want, on YouTube, which, mm, I wonder what it's called. You might be able to type this in, but it all started with an OVA, and it was just a music video OVA of really, I would say, how the relationship even started with these two. Uh, and so set to music, obviously, you just get to know them a little bit. It's it's wordless, but you get to see how they came together. So this is post that and then just sort of trying to navigate 
almost graduating and being together and and what that means for them. So I just thought that this was uh, really cute. Uh, It's also very beautiful in several different ways. And I've seen it twice now. I mean, it's, it's an hour, so it's not too bad. I love that Yui Yamada is because she likes the greenery. If she gets super surprised or excited, perhaps a little leaf pops up on her head, uh, which is just, it, I, I think, little things like that in anime uh, make me smile. And then my TV show or series is Children of the Whale, which aired in 2017. There are 12 episodes, 23 minutes each, and probably will be a second season. It says on my anime watch list that it's ended, I think, which I think is false, but it's on Netflix, and it even said like to be continued, and even the way they ended was like there's no resolution there, so I'm sure it will come back. In a world covered by an endless sea of sand, there sails an island known as the Mud Whale. In its interior lies an ancient town where the majority of its inhabitants are said to be marked, a double-edged trait that grants them supernatural abilities at the cost of an untimely death. Jukuro is the village archivist. Young and curious, he spends his time documenting the discovery of newfound islands, but each one is like the rest, abandoned save for the remnants of those who lived there long ago. For the first time in six months, another island crosses the horizon, so Shikuro and his friends join the scouting group. During the expedition, they find vestiges of an archaic civilization, and inside one of its crumbling remains, Shikuro discovers a girl who will change his destiny and the world inside the mud whale as he knows it. Ooh, the second episode, I think, I think it is the second episode. It, I mean, it gets real and it gets also real tragic. Unfortunately, one of the characters dies. That was like a really innocent and, and sweet character. So um, it's vi- more violent, but it's not overly violent. Like I wouldn't say it's Parasite, the Maxim violent, but it is rated, I think, TVMA on Netflix. I think it's new anime viewer approved. It's... You have the Japanese with English subtitles or the English dub options since it is on Netflix. But I think that I thought that was it was pretty good. And I'm looking forward to the second season. And finally, my literature recommendation, I was actually scratching my head. I was thinking, oh, my gosh, what have I read that I can put on there? Because over the summer, I can just pound away at the books. But now that school started and my schedule is really insane this year, I haven't had much time. But I have read two things or one I have read and then one is in progress. So the one I read for sure, is The Treasury of Norse Mythology, Stories of Intrigue, Trickery, Love, and Revenge by Donna Jo Napoli and illustrated by Christina Ballett. Classic stories and dazzling illustrations of gods, goddesses, heroes, and monsters come to life in a stunning tableau of Norse myths, including those of the thunder god Thor, the one-eyed god and all-father Odin, and the trickster god Loki. The lyrical storytelling of award-winning author Donna Jo Napoli dramatizes the timeless tales of ancient Scandinavia. I don't know if you can guess why I read this, but it's because I played the new God of War. That was my summer thing. When I came back from Kenya, I started that. So I devoted a good month, I would say, to it. I would say probably 50 hours to that little guy. I did get a platinum, so I am pretty proud of that. But I did want to learn just more about the the mythology behind it all. And you get lots of stories and things like that, And I, which is one of the reasons why God of War is so awesome, just with the mythology. But I just want to learn a little bit more. And then finally, I'm, I'm still continuing it. I'm about 
two-thirds through, I would say. It's Thrawn Alliances by Timothy Zahn. Just came out, I think, June. I have sensed a disturbance in the Force. Ominous words under any circumstances, but all the more so when uttered by Emperor Palpatine. On Batu, at the edges of the unknown regions, a threat to the Empire is taking root. Its existence little more than a glimmer. Its consequences as yet unknowable. But it is troubling enough to the Imperial leader to warrant investigation by his most powerful agents. Ruthless Enforcer Lord Darth Vader and brilliant strategist Grand Admiral Thrawn. Fierce rivals for the Emperor's favor and outspoken adversaries on Imperial affairs, including the Death Star Project, the formidable pair seem unlikely partners for such a crucial mission. But the Emperor knows it's not the first time Vader and Thrawn have joined forces, and there's more behind his royal command than either man suspects. In what seems like a lifetime ago, General Anakin Skywalker of the Galactic Republic and Commander Mithra Nurodo, officer of the Chiss Ascendancy, cross paths for the first time one on a desperate personal quest, the other with motives unknown and undisclosed. But facing a gauntlet of dangers on a far-flung world, they forged an uneasy alliance, neither remotely aware of what their futures held in store. Now thrust together once more, they find themselves bound again for the planet where they once fought side by side. There they will be doubly challenged by a test of their allegiance to the Empire and an enemy that threatens even their combined might. Well, remember that you can go over to the Fire and Water Network and listen to Shag and I debate which is the better Thrawn series. But this is the new Thrawn series and I really like it. And I still wonder, is Thrawn a villain in this one? Because he just seems like a better guy. But when he's up against the, the rebels, I get it. But this is real interesting because it goes with the present when you have Thrawn, Darth Vader, and then there will be moments where it will flash back when it's Thrawn and Anakin. So, I mean, two-thirds through, but I absolutely re- recommend it, whether you're a Thrawn fan or Rebels fan. I mean, Star Wars Rebels, the TV show, or a Timothy Zahn fan, right? Or a Darth Vader fan. So yeah, definitely pick this up. Well, that's it for this episode. Remember, you can send any questions or comments to backworldoracle at gmail.com. You can also find the show on Google Play and Stitcher. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at Oracle. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. And support the Batman Universe by subscribing to Patreon. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Thanks again to Shag for being my cohort this episode. And next month, it will be Donovan Morgan Grant because... Well, you should know why he's on there, but his favorite character is going to be appearing. Spoiler. And until next time, fly on, Babs Lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. <sighs> I love a happy ending, don't you? Now I'm going to ask you a question off the air. Are we doing okay? Because we've been going a while here. And this is going to be, this. unfortunately, this is going to be a three-hour episode. I'm, I'm probably not talking <laughs> fast enough, am I? Oh, I'm fine. You, so. sound like, you, sound, you don't sound fine. You sound like you're fading. Oh, really? Uh, I'm actually awake, but my left nostril is stuffed up, so that's uh-oh. why maybe I don't feel well, but uh, or sound well. But no, I'm I'm fine. Okay. Uh, should I, I should I pick up the pace here? Uh, you, no, you can continue on whatever pace you are currently going on. Okay. All right.